Babe, I must keep going. Must keep going. I only have this could be my last day alone for years. So I have to I have to get it all in now, babe. Oh, I hope you're not tired of me. I'm tired of me, but I'm going to keep going. This is for the second part of your drive. This is me on a diet box set disc two. Remember discs. So I'm just going to get right back into it. It's the same day later that day later the same day. Um, I have just a short while until I go to pick up Jackie and want to delight you with with more tales that I'm uh, about to delight you with. So I didn't wait to get any feedback on the first set. I just said, fuck it. I'm going to go for it because I may never have this time again. So where were we? Oh, I was on a road trip. (laughs) Exhausting metaphors as I moved along. Well, this is called Make Your Own Kind of Music. It's one of my favorite songs by uh, Mama Cass, Cass Elliot. This week on Bravo's Watch What Happens Live with my little cross-eyed punum Andy Cohen, iconic designer Diane von Fursten, Dion von Furstenberg was asked to give just one beauty tip. What would she say? The eyebrow is everything. Moisturize. Never cut your own bangs? Nope. None of those. Like yourself. This was her sole beauty tip. Like yourself. Huh. There was an audible, huh as we sat on the couch clinging to DBF's every word, followed by, ah. The type of ah that's sort of melodic and goes down in pitch, then up at the end, just like you saw a cute three-legged, ah. I guess that's how it goes. Three-legged puppy. (laughs) Like yourself. Do I like myself, Diane? Andy? That's a great question. There's liking yourself enough to be selfish when you need to and to be able to say no to people without drowning in your own guilt. There's liking yourself enough to be kind and gentle to yourself when you're fat and then when you're thin, too. You can run to get coffee with bedhead in your sweats and not give a shit about who you run into, looking all toe up. You stand behind the battles you choose to fight and give yourself a break thinking about the ones you didn't. All of these attitudes are beautiful. People who like themselves are incredibly attractive, and their beauty comes through even if they are unable to fit into a DVF wrap dress. They make their own kind of music. I want to be beautiful in this way, to make my own kind of music, even if nobody else sings along. Lie back and think of England. Instead of waking up the day after Christmas, stumbling into my kitchen and tearing into a tin of cookies like an animal, I went to a spinning class. I went to a spinning class. To me, this is so unbelievable. It's worth retyping in all caps. I got a new water bottle for Christmas. Another odd sentence. And on it is a catchphrase started by the Brits back in 1939. Keep calm and carry on. Inspirational. If it helped them get through World War II, certainly it could get me through my first spinning class. Who won that war anyway? Not far into the class, I started to think of another phrase popular with our friends across the pond. Lie back and think of England. This one less inspirational and is often employed on really bad one-night stands, I've heard. This parallel was not lost on me as we started to really crank these spinning bikes. Instantly out of breath, I started thinking that there was no way in hell I was going to be able to do this for a whole hour. It was then that the swarthy Jonathan, the spinning instructor, cheerfully started commanding into his headset, Push it! Ride it! Of course, I used whatever air I could manage to get into my lungs just to giggle. Back, two, three, four, and forth, two, three, four, up, two, three, four, and down. That's right. Ride it. So now my legs and mine are spinning. Spinning is like sex. Well, it is and it isn't. You sweat and you pant. 
People yell things like, hold on to it, and that old chestnut, almost there. You wouldn't want to do it when you are tired or on a full stomach. Spinning in sex, so similar. Why they got to talk so dirty in exercise classes? In, two, three, four, and out. Push it. Dig into it. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I was giggling and blushing all at the same time. I looked at my water bottle. Keep calm and carry on. I decided that on the back it should probably say, and don't forget to go fuck yourself. The Second World War would have ended a lot quicker if the Allied forces insisted that people take spinning class. Instant surrender. You got it. Oh, yeah. Just a little bit more. And then the curious. Just let it graze the seat and you'll know you're in the right spot. (laughs) This dude was super into it. Could an ass slap be far behind? We can't possibly do this for an hour. I'll pass out. See, yet another parallel. Without warning, Jonathan started a rapid fire position change where we stood and sat over and over again. Out loud, I felt it was time to say what I was thinking. I turned to Abby and said, I feel like I'm raping myself. This went over poorly with the older couple to my left, but I didn't give a shit. This is when I thought of lie back and think of England. Grit one's teeth and get through it. This one worked for the brides in Victorian era. Very wifely duty. Bear the pain. Again, spinning in sex. The odd duality got me thinking even more. Maybe they aren't so alike. When Jonathan started yelling, sit right on it, I became about 13 years old and was trying to stifle my laughter. Did he just say sit right on it? Yup, Abby said. Get it. Ride it. He really had me going until he cried out, think about those Christmas cookies. Huh? Let me tell you, if anyone had ever screamed that one out during sex, ride over. Sweet baby Jesus, the hour went slow. I actually wished I had a tape recorder to remember all the double entendre this guy was howling into his headset and coming out of the speakers. It actually passed the time. And then it was over, soaked with sweat and out of breath. All that was missing was a cigarette. I did it. I went. I finished the class the morning after Christmas. I didn't walk out or barf. I did it. Sometimes it sucks being on this road trip, but I've come too far to mess it up now. Sometimes all that's left is to lie back and think of England. As rare as a black swan. Oh, for fuck's sake, when did artisanal become a food word? From the New York Times. Across the United States, artisanal pizza joints are opening faster than Natalie Portman movies. But inside those imported ovens, pepperoni, by far America's most popular pizza topping, is as rare as a black swan. Please say you're joking. I'll give you a rare black swan. This quote makes me want to trash my room or rip the times up in a million pieces really fast so it's all big crazy blur. Artisanal is a word that creeps up on me like some linguistic slithis. I can't escape it. Artisanal cheese. Artisanal pizza. Artisanal ravioli. Artisanal butter! Of New York City's artisanal restaurant, now it's a whole restaurant? In Murray Hill, New York Magazine claims, if cheese is a religion, this is, it's bustling, Balthazar gone midtown house of worship. Okay, seriously, I love cheese and I've been to Balthazar and Soho, but this sentence makes me embarrassed to say both of those things out loud. Don't make me embarrassed to love cheese, you fools. Artisanal, foodie, etocracy. All of these words make me crawl directly out of my skin. This is partly because they are intergalactically pretentious and partly because I know that in my heart, I love great food and people who eat food and the whole ocracy of food too. I don't want that ruined with this high-flown, flashy slathering of artisanal word mayo. See, now I'm doing it. Shit. I grew up in a suburb of Buffalo, New York. 
the Queen City, the Nickel City in the heart of the Rust Belt. My childhood menu selections included lots of takeout from Burger King and things found only at Friendly's. Fruity fribbles and fishamajigs were a bizarre mainstay. Growing up in a town where the economy is dying before your very eyes in real time and the weather is apocalyptic about six months out of the year, you have to really dig positives. Ted's hot dogs, Duff's chicken wings, Anderson's custard and roast beef, bocce pizza. People who were raised here and move away stop at some of these places straight from the airport before they even get to their families or their hotel. No lie. Mighty Taco. Paula's Donuts. I dare even the boldest of artisanal fromage to try to take on a super mighty or a one pound peanut stick from Paula's. Even a Ted's hot dog could kiss an artisanal ravioli's ass in a fight if fully loaded with everything. Or if hot dogs and ravioli could fight. My mom and dad were true buffaleasy. My friend Katie made up this term. Rhymes with nice and cheesy. Buffaleasy, that's a catchy word that Katie coined to describe us Buffalonians and our maniacal love of all things Buffalo. It is our staunch loyalty to these establishments and insistence in making them tourist attractions that push us Buffaleasy into true foodie territory. There are places that have been around for years, like Anderson's Roast Beef and Chef's Restaurant downtown. Getting a beef on Weck was a lot like eating an actual salt lick and <laughs> finishing a plate of baked spaghetti at Chef's would force all of your blood flow to your stomach, making it hard to focus or even communicate. Many of us start eating our mighty tacos as soon as we pull away from the drive through allegedly. You know you do. There are places that are gone now, too, like Freddy's Donuts and the Iroquois Bakery on Main Street. My dad would take me to one or both on the weekends, and we would feast on donuts and cookies the size of my head. I would arrive back home with an empty bag in my hand, covered in crumbs. The Buffaleezy revere these landmarks as historic, not just for Buffalo's history, but for our own personal histories, too. If we can't have them right away, many a pizza or pack of Salem's hot dogs can be sent overnight to anywhere in the world. People need to feel like they're home sometimes, and often nothing says home to people like a pound of Franks or a giant burrito. Yeah, Buffalo sucks in a million different ways, but our local food doesn't suck, and our love affair with it makes it home to me. I don't know if artisanal restaurant, am I even saying it right? Artisanal? Artisanal restaurant will ever feel like home to people. But waiting at the filthy takeout counter at Bocce's Pizza and smelling the burnt crust and sweet sauce in the air will always be second only to a big, huge hug from my mom and dad. If pepperoni is as rare as a black swan, no one told us. When I'm ordering takeout, because we've been snowed in for days in another Wapo Buffalo storm, it sure as shit isn't going to be for artisanal truffles and pate. Nope. I am a true Buffaleezy and proud to be one. Okay, so this story... Um has a little bit of a preface. My mom's uh, older sister, Joanne, died. She was 86 and the mother of seven and just uh, a real mainstay in my childhood. An incredible, incredible survivor. She was a tough, very beautiful woman. And uh, my cousin Michael, for her memorial, put together a vi- like a video slideshow. And uh, uh, the last photo was of her and her granddaughters at a kitchen table at Christmas time. And Michael put the caption, the last, <laughs> the last cucciadotti. A cucciadotti is a, an Italian uh, fig cookie that's usually rolled with a, with like a fig nut sugar inside and then um, glazed white frosting and then um, little dot sprinkles, rainbow colored. A cucciadotti. Cucciadotti. Um I remember watching the um, the video uh, before the actual memorial service, and my mom said, 
at least she got to make the Kuchidati. I mean, the Kuchidati is huge in our in our family. My cousin Michael and my cousin Donna actually made hundreds of them for our wedding. And we bagged them up and we ate them all the way to Cape Cod and laid in our marital bed eating Kuchidati. So we love Kuchidati. Eric loves it even more than me, I think. So uh, I took Eric to see Savion Glover um, and uh, we went to a restaurant called Romeo and Juliet before we went to see tap dancing phenom Savion Glover. And so it was in my pocket and I forgot about it. So just when I thought I'd done it all, when I reached into my pockets to empty them so I'd weigh less, right, for weigh-in, I felt something odd and misshapen in one of them. I pulled it out and was shocked to find a day-old Kuchidati in my hand. A fucking Kuchidati. I can explain, I cried out, but Linda just buried her face in her hands laughing. Oh my God, this is so embarrassing. Really, I'm at the counter weighing in with my mentor and Weight Watchers leader just a few feet away, and there's a Kuchidati wrapped within an inch of its life right there in my hand. I'm an asshole, I said. It had only been there for a day, and it wasn't even intended for me, I swear. I blame Savion Glover, I said. It was a treat for Eric, and he didn't want to eat it in front of Savion. Okay, it sounds like a lie, but it's true. Long story. I put the cookie back in my pocket. End of story. Why I chose to explore the mysteries of my pocket publicly in front of Linda and a sassy mama weighing in next to me, I haven't a clue. No, you didn't, sassy mama said, laughing, and then said, Ooh, wee, fool. <laughs> I'm so mad at you right now for doing that, fool. She said, Yeah, that's me, the dude with the Italian fig cookies falling out of every pocket into the fucking scale. I could not stop laughing. In fact, I'm still laughing. So Linda made a sign in red, bold font. Please, no Kuchidati on the scale. Your cooperation will be appreciated by the next person in line. Yeah, no shit. What kind of a jackhole would do that? Ooh, wee fool! Okay, I think this one's a two-parter. Rainbows and lollipops. Time to rock out with your cock out, apparently, and click away the pounds, dude. Weight Watchers for men! has some mighty assumptions they're making here about what being a man on a diet is all about. I'm disappointed in Weight Watchers. There, I said it. Jezebel.com's headline, Weight Watchers lures men with meat, beer, certainly grabbed my attention. Anna North writes, ads touting the Weight Watchers for men's website instead of group meetings, which are for girls, will air during sporting events, which are for men. The spots, like the one above, emphasize that men need not suck on lollipops or shit rainbows in order to use Weight Watchers. Instead, they may drink beer and grill things. They can look thin and laugh at stupid fat men. <laughs> oh God, no, not Weight Watchers too. Hey, great minds at Weight Watchers Marketing, there are all sorts of men in this world. From Neanderthals to big fat Nancys, there's truth in every stereotype. Carnivorous men grilling all day, ball walking to and from the cooler for beer is an, an image that just as bad as that of a Weight Watchers meeting filled with cackling Herodin shrews debating the point value of a well-made Cosmo. While some of this does happen in real life, I always hope that there is just one person on the ad team to say, wait, this is some bullshit. We're taking our members for chumps, feeding them this crap. I'm like, it's not rainbows and lollipops, is a scripted line by a man I've come to know simply as Eddie. Ah, Eddie is dreamy. His after picture is like decent softcore porn. Eddie has a blog on the Machismo Soaked, it's really not, Weight Watchers for Men website. He has lost a ton of weight on the program, and his blog is sort of no-nonsense, but sensitive too. Eddie has feelings. 
Eddie knows pain. So why did he sell out and read that line with literal exploding rainbows and lollipops surrounding him? Does no one love Leslie Gore? Nice one. Thanks a million. When I replayed the commercial, I yelled, that's Eddie. I caught him being a douchebag for shame. Being a man on a diet is not gay or shameful or anything to laugh at. Wanting to feel confident enough to swim with a shirt off or have sex with the lights on is a feeling that is deep and painful, especially when those things seem like they can never happen. Being a man in the gay community is even harder because we are shallow. There, I said that too. I'm on a roll. We judge people on looks alone, sometimes, most of the time. And to be certain, I feel like I have stepped in deeper puddles. This is hard work, and the true test of a man or a woman is in committing to this program and making it happen, day after day, even when you don't feel like doing any of it anymore. I'm sure that getting Joe Average to buy in is what Weight Watchers was trying to achieve. But in doing so, sold their gay contingency out. They threw us under Priscilla, Queen of the Desert's bus. I want to, which is a bus. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is a bus. Just if you look that up. I want to shit rainbows and suck on as many, many lollipops as I can. That's how I live and what I am. A lollipop sucking rainbow shitter, and I'm proud. I want to take my road trip in a silver bus topped with a drag queen lip syncing Sempre Libra in a giant shoe. Another Priscilla, Queen of the Desert reference. That's what I want. I'll do the next commercial for all the dudes who don't want to eat a live cattle while kissing their biceps. Weight Watchers, if you're going to throw me under the bus, please make it Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. All right, so part two. Wait till you hear this, everybody. My friend Eddie. Oh, the twists and turns. Just when I thought nothing could surprise me, my road trip ramps up and gets all chitty chitty bang bang on me. I opened up my email yesterday and there it was in the subject line. Your blog. The writer of the email. Eddie. Weight Watchers Eddie from the commercial. It took me a second to realize who Edward Gazilla was, but when it hit me, I literally almost fell out of my chair. Out of my chair. I was afraid to open it. In fact, I peered through my fingers like I was at a scary movie. Oh shit, I'm going down for this one. If memory serves me, I think I may have called him a douchebag for being in the Weight Watchers for Men commercial that was the topic of my blog mere hours before. Fuck, what have I done? Peering through my fingers, I scanned his letter for words like lawsuit and please delete and copyright infringement. There were none of those words, so I proceeded to read his email. Quote, I just came across your blog. I'm terribly sorry that you took offense at the rainbows and lollipops line. It truly has nothing to do with being gay or that Weight Watchers is not just for gay people. What is happening here? Eddie is sort of like a Weight Watchers hero to me, which is one of the reasons I was so harsh with my words. He came across my blog. <laughs> oh, sweet Jesus. How? Eddie continued, losing weight is not easy. We live in a world wanting instant gratification. When trying to lose weight, instant gratification is not an option. People would look at me and ask if I was on something besides Weight Watchers, like a weight loss pill. Of, co of course I wasn't, so I would say the only thing I'm on uh, is the track, the bike, the bench. Losing weight is hard work. It's not rainbows and lollipops. Well, they could have made it a way better commercial if they had included that first part, I said. It must have ended up on the cutting room floor. He continued to explain that he has many gay friends <laughs> and is a big supporter of gay rights. Eddie is a coach and a father and a husband. He loves Cloudy with the chance of meatballs. He even made a Leslie Gore reference. This is a good man. And I call this man a bad name on a public blog. And now I wanted to fling myself onto the floor. That wouldn't have been hard to do because by this point, I was sinking so far into my chair. My head was on the edge of my seat. 
Oh, Eddie, I'm an asshole. I'm so sorry. I read on. So please accept my apologies. It was definitely not my intention to insult you. I don't want to dismiss your feelings. I can see how you might take offense. I hope I cleared this up. Oh, my God. I wrote him back immediately. This man took the time to write to me, not only to explain what his obviously edited comment really meant, but also to make sure I didn't think he was dismissing my feelings. Shit, I have people in my real life that aren't as concerned with my feelings and whether or not they are dismissed as Eddie Gazillo. This was too much. It was almost dizzy. Chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang. I responded, here are the key points. Eddie, is that really you? I'm sorry for calling you a douchebag. That was all caps bold. I really and truly am. Also for calling your picture softcore porn, but I bet you get that a lot if you have gay friends. If they aren't saying it, they are thinking it. I can't believe I wrote this to this guy. Please accept my apologies, too. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to put that metaphor into context for me. Losing weight is hard work, not all rainbows and lollipops. I get it in context and appreciate the reference shift. Again, I shit rainbows and love lollipops, too. I also love that Leslie Gore song. It's kicky, and I have used it to run to, believe it or not. Sometimes I think that people and even big companies feed into that stereotype of what it means to be a man, the whole boys don't cry syndrome. It would be naive of Weight Watchers to think that there are men out there that aren't going to have the same types of feelings. The first meetings I started at were at our local Pride Center here in Buffalo, and I called it Gay Weight Watchers for the longest time. It was interesting watching the leader they sent tell the trans women that they didn't need to worry so much about the calcium. When I moved to the local Weight Watchers Center, I missed all of the people at Gay Weight Watchers. I fed into a stereotype about straight Weight Watchers and was embarrassed that I bought into the myth that all people at the meeting had a wife and 2.5 kids at home waiting for a tuna noodle casserole. I learned a lot every time I go to a meeting about how wrong I was and how truly like all of us on this road trip are. The commercial got me riled up, and when I realized the actor saying that line was you, I got sad. I really love your blog, and I'm incredibly inspired by you. It's almost like your quote was taken out of context, or they edited out the part that would have made it make sense. I hate the commercial. You, however, are really wonderful in taking time to make sure you... I can't believe I spent this much time writing this guy. You, however, are really wonderful uh, in taking time to make sure that your message was clear, and it's really nice of you to take my feelings into account. You did clear it up, and I'm very grateful. It's all about this type of conversation between people, and I love that. Now, who would have seen any of this coming? Eddie closed his letter by saying that if I was ever in New York City, he would love to meet up for coffee or something to further discuss. Linda, my Weight Watchers leader and part-time muse, had this to say. Eddie is right. It isn't all rainbows and lollipops. Yay for Eddie. Yay for Leslie Gore. I can't wait to see pictures of you and your new best friend Eddie in New York, maybe dancing to a Leslie Gore tune. Eddie, thank you. Thank you for teaching me that sometimes it is worth having a conversation before, or in this case after, making such a quick judgment. I have so much to learn. Thanks for being awesome and for forgiving me. In reality, what I did calling you out as a douchebag was way worse than what I accused you of. Mea culpa. So get ready to crank up Leslie Gore's sunshine and lollipops and rainbows and dance in the street with me. Eddie, thanks for being part of my Roan trip. Listen, they're playing our song. Okay, this one's called Fuck Me Now, but it's actually, it's about my parents. (laughs) God, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, Just to preface, um, I put a picture of Adam Levine completely naked with the with two hands covering his his uh, business uh, up in a blog about cheese 
and it got a lot of comments. So this is fuck me now. Mortified. It's the only word I can use to preface this true story from from an incredibly ghastly conversation that spun out of control at my parents' house. I was at my mom and dad's having dinner the other night and was about to get up from the dining room chair when my mom quietly said, Honey, didn't you want to ask him that question? So mysterious, my mother is. My dad put on his dad voice and his affect changed to one of strictly business. Uh Uh-oh. Facebook. He said it in all caps, just like he types. All of his emails to me seem to be yelling out with great pride and enthusiasm that he surely doesn't mean to convey. Your Facebook. My mom didn't let him even finish when she blurted out, Are you in there as Sean Doyle or Sean Doyle Jr.? She had her right eyebrow raised into her forehead and had her pursed lipped anger mouth going. This was going to be a doozy. Junior. Then, well, tell him, honey. Somehow everything you put on your Facebook ends up on my Facebook. (laughs) My dad said. I knew where this was going and it wasn't good. Um, how so? My mother had to get in on it again and said in her best Sicilian former school teacher Roman Catholic tone, Tell him about the foul language. Shit. Now I was sure about where this was going to go, and I wanted to shrink myself down to one inch and flee from the room undetected. But how? I'm not sure how, but everything your friends write shows up on my Facebook. And, well, some of it's uh, foul language, honey. Tell him what the one person said. Oh, I knew. It was only a matter of time before all worlds began to collide and my parents were led into the world of foul language that is my Facebook page. You can't not accept your own father's friending, right? Oi, my mom was getting all mashugana. And my dad, my dad, the kind, wonderful man who I aspire to be more like every day I am on this earth, says to me at our family dining room table, says to me, Well, one of the guys said something like, I don't know, uh, fuck me now. (laughs) Please, Lord Jesus, just kill me. Take me now, just as I am. It's been a great life, but my dad, see, just said, fuck me now, out loud, in front of my mother. Inside, I was pretty much freaking the fuck out. It was parent-teacher conferences, failing grades, and getting caught smoking all rolled into one. I remember the first time my parents heard me say the F word. I was playing with the neighborhood kids, and I called one chump a fucker. And little did I know, my mom was sitting in her car with the window open. I was not allowed to watch different strokes for a month. So pretty much my father just said, fuck me now out loud at the dinner table. What could be worse? I'll tell you. On the top 10 list of things you never, ever want your, to hear your parents say, fuck me now comes in just close second to... <laughs> fuck me now comes in just a close second on the list right next to cum gutters, which I also pretty sure was said on Facebook in this thread as well. Notice I didn't bull that little descriptor. It's just that horrible. Seriously, fuck me now. This is out of control. All of that was just a quick blip in my head, and then 40-year-old me calmly said, Ah, we're all adults. I'm certain you've heard worse. Good one, huh? My mom then said, with the most disapproving look ever, He wasn't saying that to you, was he, honey? No, God, no, Mom. It was about Adam Levine from Maroon... Uh, no, Mom. Not me. Help. I explained to my dad that since he only had, like, 20 friends, his whole newsfeed was primarily my posts. Huh. That's what my mom, all my mom could muster. Huh. Used as a means of bemused interrogation. Your what feed? 
is that your wall? Asked my dad. Oh, I did that in my mom's voice. Sorry. My mom kept at it. Now, is that a real wall? What are you talking about? I assured my poor father that his golf buddies and old compadres from the seminary could not see his newsfeed. Seriously, I just wanted to cash in my chips at this point. The next 15 minutes were spent desperately proving to my folks that their elderly pals weren't going to see the filthy ribaldries that populated my wall, and they looked more than relieved. You need to tell your friends to watch it, my mom quipped. Uh, okay, mom, I sure will. Here's a picture of me and my family in 1972. The good old days. You know the ones. The ones before my father had Facebook, and also before my dad said, fuck me now, out loud, at the dinner table. Yeah, those old days. This was incredibly surreal. I honestly didn't know what to do or who to call first. As I walked out and down the driveway, my sweet, wonderful parents stood at the door waving like they always do. They wave until I turn the corner in my car. Always. I need you to know that I am mortified. I called this out just as I was getting into my car. Ah, don't worry, buddy. I've heard worse, my dad called back. Yeah, right. Sure you have. The only thing I could think of to say under my breath, of course, was, ah, fuck me now. Next up, she touched me. Uh, so while doing this blog, I googled man getting massage. Note to self, doing a Google image search for man getting massage with a safe search off yields nothing but greasy gay fetish porn. Lesson learned. Go ahead and undress to your level of comfort and Kathy will be right in. My level of comfort? Um, so fully dressed? Sort of, you know, over the clothes? How's Kathy with fully dressed? That's what I was thinking. Alrighty. That's what I said, like a giant dork wad. Alrighty. And then I'm ready to be touched therapeutically. Oh God, this was not the first time I'd had a massage from Kathy. Oh, Kathy, this woman is spellbinding. Kathy is a woman, thank Jesus, because I don't think I could have a massage from a man. There would be stirrings and then it would be all over. Kathy is perfect. She is little and stout. Think Elsa Lanchester wearing Crocs. Kathy cuts through the bullshit chit-chat, calls you baby, and gets her hands right in there. She's no nonsense. She has a deftness and finesse that are sublime. Sublime. It had been so long since I'd seen Kathy that I stood in the room for about a minute or two, fully dressed, just staring at the Zen tchotchkes before the receptionist was forced to come in and say, um, go ahead and get undressed. What she really wanted to say was, you gonna stand there all day? Strip, you big queen. When you are fat, you do not want anyone touching you. Not one person. Not even if she did play the Bride of Frankenstein in the glory days of Universal Studios. It's an Elsa Lancaster reference. You don't want people touching your back fat or grabbing at your hanging arm flap or your feet, which may or may not be fat, but are still disgusting. When I was at my heaviest, I didn't even connect with my body. I could disassociate like a champ. I never looked in a mirror. I brushed my teeth and washed my face with the bathroom light off. That disconnect between your spirit and the big fat body it's trapped in is palpable, but not tangible. No touching, please. The more weight you lose and the more fit you become, the more you become actual. There is so much time spent being cerebral and witty and heady when you are fat. Being kinesthetic is at first like being an anthropologist on Mars. This road trip has introduced my body to my spirit. What a connection. Let's get right to it. Have you ever had your butt massaged? No, right? It's insane. How is this happening? If my butt could talk and speak French, it would say merci. But if my butt could write, a thoughtful thank you card would be in the mail. Just yesterday, my butt started a gratitude journal. 
Kathy has a way of finding knots you don't know are there and pressing on them with one-finger technique that is almost accusatory. Think a long, therapeutic poke that says, I know what you've been doing and my very touch will destroy you. I can undo you with a mere touch. Bad muscle! Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. I was pummeled, kneaded, jiggled and rubbed. At one point, I know that I drooled! Drowning out what I'm sure was the soundtrack to the Joy Luck Club was my inner monologue. When she got to my calves and thighs, my rant was reeling. You don't realize how much these muscles have never been touched until, well, someone touches them. They were screaming out in bliss, my legs were. The sound of the pippa and the smell of the eucalyptus all faded away and were replaced with a string of oh my gods and litany of no she didn't's. When she flipped me from my back to my front, I truly thought, now what in the hell is she going to massage all up in here? She pulled on my head, massaged my whole arms, and ready, even did my fingers, even the tips. I giggled during that part and then spontaneously started singing the theme from Ice Castles. Please don't let this feeling end. It's everything I am. When she touched my quads, I began to weep. At one point, I think that I even promised God that I would go to church every day if he would just let this go on for even a tiny bit longer. I smelled of rosemary mint and desperation. Kathy finished with her classic closing line, Baby, we're all done. Come back soon. There's a lot of work we could still do. Ah, Kath, you sweet talker. Thanks, baby. I hear ya. Wiping the drool from my face and entering a state of lotion-covered grace, I was completely aware of every muscle in my body, from my temples to my toes. I felt pure gratitude for being lucky enough to reach a stop in my road trip where I would not only let myself be touched, but do so without giving a shit about what I looked like while it was happening. This body belongs to me, and I like it. Every part of it. Canned Opulence Please help yourself to our breakfast buffet. Just walk into our opulent garden atrium and enjoy. Usually these words fill my heart with song and the promise of a great start to the day. But there are some keywords dotted in there that give me doubt. Opulent is one of them. And in this case, even garden atrium are dubious. I also really sort of resent enjoy as a catch-all bookend to the whole thing. I have calmed down about enjoy, but it really used to chap my hide. Don't tell me what to do. I'll love it or hate it, or I'll enjoy it or throw it on the goddamn floor if I want to. Enjoy, go fuck yourself. I'm my own man. So maybe I calmed down a bit after and quit drinking. I quit drinking and mellowed out some. I made a promise to myself that if I were ever a server, I would never enjoy people. I would say things like, may all your dreams come true, or simply mazel. That makes perfect sense, right? You put down a plate of pancakes and say, a blessing on your head. It's a natural. See, there is this place here in western New York called Salvatore's Italian Gardens. What the fuck with this place? Gaudy, fascinating, bizarre, and wonderful opulence all mixed up in a nice puttanesca sauce. Welcome to Salvador's! People in Buffalo, New York know it for the special brand of classy elegance you can only find in Vegas and in a Fellini film. You get your ass to the Italian gardens, pronto. Seriously, I could write a book about how fucked up and brilliant Salvatore's is. So I encourage you to Google uh, image search some pictures just to see more. Uh, Here's what. There's also a lavish hotel that goes right along with this feast for the senses. When you are in a restaurant that has a fiber optic sky hanging over you as you chomp on meatballs, you can bet your bippy that the hotel will be beyond your wildest imaginings. 
It has sort of been on my bucket list to stay there at the Garden Inn Hotel for years. I drive by it every day on the way to work. Once I even called to see what the what was and stupidly asked if they had themed rooms. The man at the Garden Gate assured me, all our rooms are themed, sir. (laughs) He was as serious as a heart attack. So I went for it. This place is off the fucking chain. Chandeliers the size of jet planes. Trellis-covered carpeting and roses for sale in the lobby. Champagne wishes and caviar dreams. There's a Picasso room. I pictured some sort of fucked-up bed in the shape of a triangular breast or an eye. We had the regal Remington's executive suite. Whoa, this was decadence brought to you courtesy of 1992. We were awash in mauve and gray splendor that before this apparently only 90s executives were allowed to enjoy. The only thing missing was a Nagel graphic over the canapé bed. What, no mirror? We did as we were told and headed down the grand staircase into the garden atrium for our breakfast buffet. It was included. There was no shortage of those terrifying life-size chefs holding menus and platters hiding in the silk flowers. One actually made me leap. When we got to the breakfast buffet area, I heard Eric make that little, oh, noise that denotes, this isn't what I thought it would be. You know that one. Oh, It was a teeny tiny little O that is clipped at the end and says to the listener, everything here is out of a can. There was a cereal machine and a juice machine and a cappuccino machine. Wait, I have one more. A machine that makes and spits out tiny pancakes. You press how many you want and then a conveyor blurps them out onto your plate. Have you ever? I bet you've never. I thought that they just kept coming, so I grabbed a few, and a woman in, the, in a duster covered in cabbage roses chided me. Hey, those are my pancakes. Great, now I'm fighting an old lady for pancakes to come out of a dirty machine. New lows. I looked all over for something I could have that resembled one of the major food groups, and a giant bowl of fruit caught my eye. I rushed over, and there the little cubes of fruit were floating in syrup. Shit. Cisco's finest canned fruit cocktail. I may as well just drink gasoline. With me on a diet in a place where even the fruit could kill you, opulence comes second only to being bewildered in grand fashion. There is nothing for me here. What was I to do? I did what anyone would do in this embarrassment of riches. I pressed the button for four pancakes, watched them clunk onto my plate, and what the hell, enjoyed! Presented in Smell-O-Vision I'm not your puppet, Kelly Jean. This I yelled at the barista slash cashier at the Starbucks cafe today. Oh, they are sly over there at the Barnes and Nobles, as my mother calls it. Sly, but they got nothing on me. Lately, I have noticed that there is always a baking sheet with wax paper on it right near the register. In the center of the baking sheet is an impossibly gooey cookie or a nice scone or even a warm apple tart. Right there, fresh from the oven. An oven rests on the cookie sheet, sort of askew in that, this cafe is so busy, I'll just set this down anywhere, here maybe, until I can get it in the display case way. Hello, the smell of that cookie made me wild, feral even. What are the chances that I should just belly up to the counter and that cookie would happen to be... Wait one fucking minute, I'm being manipulated. The corporate machine knows that I have not one scunch of impulse control and is taking full advantage of that. They are playing me like a fiddle. Just another consumer who gets weak in the knees at the smell of a just-baked treat. Fuck you, Starbucks Cafe. I'm no schlemiel. Would you like to try a freshly baked cookie today? 
That's usually not a sentence that brings out ire and venom in me, but come on, Kelly Jean. I want you to really mean it when you ask. She and all the other baristas sort of sing-song the question to the same tune they used to try and venticize me. I hate that song. It's classic upselling in Melody, dear, and it stinks. Don't pull that gosh and golly gee shit with me. I refuse to be your mark. It's not going to work. Or will it? There are parts of the suburban sm- sprawl where the air actually smells like steak. I get out of my car at some plaza and immediately I'm prone to say, I smell steak without even missing a beat. When you look around, the neon signs of a roadhouse grill and an outback steakhouse and a sizzler light up the sky, and it all makes sense. I don't even really like steak, but ever since I got out of the car, I may just kill you for one. Is that weird? Shit, it's almost like they are pumping steak smells out of their vents to entice all of us in suburbia. Fucking crazy, right? Who would do that? No one would stoop to that level. Or would there... Dubbed the Smellitzer by its creator, Imagineer Bob McCarthy, this small and mighty subliminal messenger operates like an air cannon, aiming a scent up to 200 feet across a room toward an exhaust system, or even the open air. It's a Disney-patented machine, so if my blog, podcast, or I suddenly disappear without a trace, thanks for reading. Bury me in my Hermes tie, please. The burning city scent in the Rome scene of Spaceship Earth. Sweet honey in Winnie the Pooh. The classic, do you smell the oranges in the desert scene of the now-leveled horizons, are all brought to us by a tiny little smellitzer. The big payoff, literally, is when the smell of fresh-baked cookies lures once-numbed tourists into becoming cookie-fueled lunatics. When the bakery was being designed, Imagineers wanted to put a fan in front of the cooling racks of the fresh-baked cookies to blow the aroma out onto Main Street, USA. The bakers stopped the installation of the fan, claiming that the cool air from the fans would crack the hot cookies. So, the Imagineers put a pump down in the service tunnel. In that pump, they put artificial cookie-smelling liquid, and that is what you smell as you stand in front of the bakery. Simpletons are we! The scent of some sugary sweets near the confectionery? Smell it, sir. Pizza and popcorn in Future World? Smell it, sir. I'm not your puppet, Epcot. Or am I? If you go to the bakery in the Norway Pavilion at Epcot, in the bushes, between the Kringola and the Puffin's Roost, you will see it, venting the whole area with the smell of nice cinnamon rolls. Get a good whiff. It's the spicy aroma of cinnamon, complete with overtones of deception. The idea manipulating our hearts, minds, and wallets through our sense of smell actually started in the 1960s. Creative fad gimmicks started by William Castle launched this sort of submersion genre. The gags were cheap and so simple, but people came out in droves to be tingled, buzzed, and revived by fake nurses just when they were about to die of fright. Smell-O-Vision, a process initiated in 1960 by Mike Todd, was a gimmick where Evocative smells were pumped into the cinema audience through pipes leading to individual seats in the auditorium. Only one film, Scent of Mystery, was made in Smell-O-Vision. John Waters paid homage to Smell-O-Vision with his 1980 film Polyester. Waters created the process of odorama in homage to castle and smellorama and rather than pumping in the sense used a scratch and sniff card when a number flashed on the screen viewers were to scratch and snort the appropriate spot on the card smells included the scent of flowers pizza glue gas grass and feces beware of the redolent and flatulent number two fish paw flatulence 
Very little separates the aromas at Barnes & Noble Starbucks Cafe from the scents of Main Street USA, from even the mysterious odors of Smellorama. Our sense memory makes us forget ourselves, and often we respond like screwballs. Big business knows this, and even though I know I'm a chump for falling for the old fresh-baked cookie routine, I admit that it's bigger than me. I got nothing on the power of a cookie smell. Sure, fuck it, I'll take a cookie. Scratch number nine if you want to know what the defeat of Easy Prey smells like. That's one scent even the smellitzer can't duplicate. I win! Please pause now for a quick break. Okay, we're back! Everybody's in the car. They're lying on the couch. They're in the kitchen standing at the stove. They're in the shower. Maybe you're getting dressed. Maybe you're typing at the computer and you're listening to this. You're supposed to be working. Anyway, this one's called The Last Supper. Slow down, kid. It's not The Last Supper. My mom used to say that to me all the time. And I wanted to be like, well, who ate the fastest, mom? Judas? Who got seconds? Saul, Paul? For most of my life, I've eaten at about Mach 5. My mom used to say, honey, don't gobble. Is that sad or what? Honey, don't gobble is not so much esteem building as it is really fucking embarrassing. Gobble, really? You know who gobbles? Animals. That's who gobbles. It was, however, appropriate. I used to eat so fast you could barely see my hands move, so things like that got said to me all the time. Don't gobble was more than not followed up with, honey, slow down. No one is going to take it away from you. Finished up by the old stink eye for going, ah, after chugging my milk or funny face goofy grape drink or strawberry quick to the bottom of the cup. That glottal, was totally forbidden. Anybody? Anybody? It had sort of a catch before it wafted out of my mouth, and that compounded its rudeness. It was a ballsy move, and I knew it. Come on, these people should have seen my alcohol foibles coming a mile away based on that. (sighs) Maybe someone was going to take it away from me, but I couldn't see them hiding. What the hell did I know? So now I'm in my 40s. I still eat like some plate raider is going to lunge out of nowhere and rip the fork out of my hand, then go on to pillage my plate. The haste with which I eat has this desperate feel to it, like there's no more food in the world. If I don't eat all of this now and fast, I will never get any more food. In fact, there is no more food. There was a tip on a famine that I missed. No one saw it coming. All the stores have been emptied out. The shelves are bare. Sorry, bud. Therefore, I must eat everything. And if there was anything left on the counter, I'll eat that too. I'll eat every wheat thin, all the cheese, and spoon out all the peanut butter. Then I'll drink all the milk from the carton. At least I'll die knowing that I ate every fucking bit of food that was left within my reach. What an honorable death. Since clearly I have been this way since I was a little boy, it's going to take a lot to undo. What I'm going to try to do is some good old-fashioned cognitive behavioral therapy. I'll do it in the form of a social story. Any speech pathologists out there? I work with people with developmental disabilities, and they greatly benefit from these simple tales. Social stories were developed by Carol Gray and are a tool used to establish replacement social skills for both children and adults with developmental disabilities. And 40-year-old gay men who gobble... Though they don't necessarily fix the problem, a social story gives a person information about social situations they find difficult or confusing, like knowing there is no more lasagna on the stove. Well, really, at work, we use them more to help kids through puberty, the trauma of fire drills, or to stop them from eating light bulbs. They have these incredible titles like 
and these are not made up, Can I Sniff Your Hair and the Mysterious Monica's Habit. And I know what that habit was. (laughs) That one's a classic. I've been joking for years that I could use a social story. Uh, Carol Gray would be so proud of me. And I think it could work. So here's mine. It has a catchy title. There is no famine. In some countries, there are terrible famines. There is no food to eat and no clean drinking water. Great news. You live in one that is not experiencing a famine at this time. There is all the food you need right here in your own hometown. Sometimes you get excited and anxious that you may never eat again, so you eat all your food, and then the food of the person sitting next to you, too. You feel like if you don't get really full right at that minute, you won't ever be able to eat again. There is no need to get this worked up, as there is enough food to go around. If you eat and you're still hungry, you can get some more later. I promise. Stores will be open. Some are open all night. Stuffing yourself like a pig can make you good and sick and is unnecessary. You can eat human-sized portions and maybe it will fill you up. If not, you can always eat more because there is no famine. This isn't the Last Supper. So just a little behind the scenes for you. Right there at the end of the story, my stove... um, timer went off frozen pizzas are ready they're um trader joe's little mini bambino pizzas and they're cleverly named trader giotto so trader giotto is their italian version there's trader jose there's trader um ming for the children (laughs) i don't know how that happens trader ming and um trader jacques for the uh front they used to have like uh beef bourguignon and uh coco vin that you could heat up um in minutes and so that was trader jacques they don't trader jacques isn't around anymore but i love i love that they stick with the like the giotto uh jose ming trader ming so take a look and see what your i love trader joe's child I'm about to do a whole podcast on Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's has a podcast, actually. It's, I think it's called Inside Trader Joe's. Uh, it's very interesting. So anyway, pizza is done. It's it's cooling. So that's, that's so cool. Here at the studio, we have an oven. So cool. And I can heat up food whenever I want. P.S. The studio is my house and the kitchen's right here. So, all right, on to the next one. This one is great. It's called Hey, Nice Ass. I want to be objectified. I really do. It's actually all I have been thinking about since something wonderful happened to me. At my Weight Watchers meeting, I got a little bit of this. I hope this doesn't sound weird or like I'm a creeper, but your ass looks really good in those pants. My friend Bridget told me this. My ass? This one here? I put my hand on it and cranked my head around and down to make sure it was mine that the uh, person was talking about, and mine was the ass in question. Oh, um, thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) I never really look at it. So, um, thanks. Um, well, thank you. Oh, how I wanted to hear more. To be honest, I've never really seen my ass. It's not often photographed or ever photographed, and I have not used mirrored situated just so I can get a glimpse of my ass. So we are strangers. I was so taken aback by this comment and so excited about it. I really couldn't delve much further with any follow up questions. Is it like hot? Would you call it a rockin' ass if asked to add an adjective? Can you bounce a quarter off it? Set a glass of gin on it? High and tight? Bubble butt? Dear sweet Christ, what does my ass look like? 
There was no time for follow-up, but I sure as shit did strut out of there like the cock of the walk. Now, I'm obsessed with knowing if a year of squats and lunges and running flight after flight of stairs at Casey's Fitness has given me a great ass. I know it's not a big deal, but what's going on back there? The pants I had on were new, slim khakis, not the baggy pants I usually wear. Has that ass been in there all along, and it simply took J. Crew to reveal it? Michelangelo once said that the David was in the slab of marble. It just took his chisel to uncover it. Now I'm comparing my chinos to an artist's chisel, y'all. This is the kind of weird shit I've been thinking since that meeting. I was in line at Starbucks wearing my newly named good ass pants, and I was sure the man behind me was staring at it. I wanted to pivot around abruptly, put my hand on my shoulder and say, I know you're staring at my ass and it's okay. Everyone loves it. I just found out this week. I don't expect you to be able to concentrate with this hot piece standing so close to you. So please go ahead. I'm fine with it. In reality, he was just looking down, reading the times while he waited for his chai latte. If someone screamed out a car window, nice ass, I would run up to the car and hug them. If I caught someone staring at my behind, I would turn to them quietly and say, bless you. This is a life I could get used to living. Now, let me clarify that the person who told me my butt looked great is my very good friend, Bridget, who is like my sister, and I've known her for years. Maybe she was just being nice, but I have never, ever heard this before in my life. I loved it. When you spend most of your life being known for your witty banter, knack for storytelling, and ability to be inclusive, you really run with this type of abject flattery. Degrade me to the status of a mere object. Am I insulted? Do I take it the wrong way? Are you kidding me? Um, no, bring it. Treat me like a mere object. Any part of me, really. I'm ready. I've been waiting my whole fucking life. So as a side note, Sebastiano let me in on a little something. In Italy, we say that, let's see if I get this right. Nella vita ci vuole un podiculo. Literally, in your life, you need a little bit of ass. <laughs> ah, leave it to the Italians to turn a simple good luck into something sexy. Seb let me know that the meaning of this catchy turn of phrase is actually, in life, you need some luck, too. Um, how not sexy is that? What is sexy is hearing Seb say it live. I would play this little soundbite of Seb repeating that line when I needed a reminder that when the world gets complicated, sometimes all you need is a little ass. P.S. The Google image searches for this blog entry, Hey Nice Ass, have scarred me for life. I don't type in bubble butt and expect to see the complete inner workings of the female reproductive system and chicks with dicks. Refrain from this search, okay? I love you too much to let you do it. This one's called Best Sweet Buns in Town. Now, it's not me, but some customers think that you're being too loud. And if you might could lower your voices. Uh, I love Mike could. It wasn't the first time my friends and I have pissed people off in public by yucking it up too loudly. I love when a statement starts with a lightweight qualifier like, now, it's not me, but, you know, there's a real Dilia coming. Now, you know, she's one of my very best friends, but uglier than an old humpback hobgoblin. More cutting insults are best served up bookended with, now you know I love him dearly, wrapping the jibe up with a bless his heart. Gays and waitresses in southern diners are fucking masters at this technique. And lucky me, I had gays and southern waitresses coming up everywhere this Sunday. 
Brian's restaurant in Orlando, Florida has the, quote, best sweet buns in town. The sign says so, and I say so. Orlando isn't a one-sweet-bun town, so there is a competition. It never used to be the kind of place you had to lower your voice in. When I lived in Florida, we were at this dump every Sunday, shoveling short-order comfort into our mouths with all the other hot gay messes still shaking off mysterious DNA from the night before. Brian's is a very significant place in my history, and I miss it. We dealt one-liners to the prickly, often toothless waitresses, and they shot it right back at us with gravelly fuck y'all or i'll get it to you as soon as i finish my goddamn cigarette hun oh ending the sentence with hun also sort of wipes the slate of cheap shots clean what y'all nasty old hoes fixing on having this morning we'll start with you hun yeah i'm pretty sure you just called me a hoe but since you added hun i'll have the biscuits and sausage gravy that's another thing about Brian's. This grease pit was never, ever clean. In fact, it was filthy, and somehow we were all okay with that. Apparently spared from OSHA's busy inspection schedule, Brian's was greasy in every important way a greasy spoon should be. Good golly, the bathrooms! Pathogens! That's all I'm saying. Well, in the last year, there was a fire at Brian's, and they closed for a long while, and then just about tore her down and rebuilt in the same spot. Now it's something of a hybrid of a Perkins cluttered with piles of all the crappy decor you can get at Bed Bath & Beyond. Boo! To be honest with you, I guess I never minded the grit and grime all that much and sort of found myself missing it. Weird. In the old days, the waitresses would have bellied up to our booth and said, Now, you know I love y'all to death, but you better shut your big fat pie holes before that old battle axe over there beats your gay asses with her motherfucking cane! <laughs> I'm going to read that one more time. Now, you know I love y'all to death, but you better shut your big fat pie holes before that old battle axe over there beats your gay asses with her motherfucking cane. Instead, we got the sanitized version minus the scorn we'd come to love. Everything in this new post-Blaze Bryans was sanitized. The bathroom was spotless. It was an affront to the very senses, and I, for one, was disappointed. The reason I'm telling you all this is because of their sweet buns. Christ on a stick! These little balls of ooey-gooey greatness are what put Brian's on the map. The surly, slack-breasted waitresses used to wear two tight t-shirts with Ask Me About My Sweet Buns in a cheeky font. Ask, and you'd get a quick wink of a blue eyeshadow eye and a big toothless smile. They come in plastic red baskets and have little mini beignets packed in powdered sugar thrown in just, well, just for being you. They're warm and drowning in icing, these sweet buns. And in our baskets, the beignets were getting caught in the icing. Literally, I was so excited I could have passed out. I ate two sweet buns. I moaned that dirty moan you make when food is almost like having relations. And I scraped my plate until every molecule of sweet bun was off of it. I scraped and moaned, licked my fork like a vacuum. Our waitress came back and I asked to add some grilled onions to my order. She looked at me and said, Sure, hun, and don't take this the wrong way, but I'm going to put those on the side and then I'm a getting away from this table. <laughs> Everybody hates us. Of course, her slight made me warmer inside than a sweet bun in a basket. That's the type of snub I've been waiting for. Somewhere, somewhere under all that mall decor... And fake concern, the dog wagon formerly known as Brian's turned up to make an appearance. Now, you know I love Brian's more than I love my luggage, but truth be told, I liked it better before the fire. No offense.
bless its heart. Man, that really got me thinking about Brian's and those sweet buns. I, uh, I hope it's still there. Oh, I wish you could have seen that place on a Sunday morning back before the fire. Oh, my God. Gay men in tank tops. I feel like some were shirtless, uh, really left over from the night before, just laughing and playing with those waitresses. You, there's nothing like that in Buffalo. Like to go to a real southern diner where people are telling you to shut the fuck up <laughs> when they work there. So good. OK, this was from... Uh, our next trip to Florida, and it's called I Still Got My Health. Uh, I may or may not have crapped myself at Orlando MCO Airport. There, I said it. Why hold back on the punchline when the setup could never match that zinger? And just when I thought that my lowest moment was or was not what I just revealed, perhaps racing through Epcot's World Showcase last night in my mother's coat, yes, that would be a petite woman's coat, could match it. It was 68 degrees out, and I had the chills so bad my knees were a-knockin'. How could I say no to my very own mother's rain slicker? I was freezing, trying to get out of Epcot, which, when you're desperate to flee it, seems as vast as the real future and as massive as Europe and Asia combine, was no small feat. And guess what? I may or may not have hurled right outside the Moroccan pavilion. I didn't get too far. My chest and back muscles are so excruciatingly sore from being sick in the past, in the past few days. I lacked the finesse and control most people do when trying to hold back a real good barf storm. Nope, it was just me crammed into my mother's coat, all shivering and hurling under the realistic m Moroccan minaret. The better part of this trip has been spent having fever dreams in my hotel bed. Worse yet, we're at a cheapola hotel my mom found for us that took her coupon, and although the word lakeside is slapped onto the hotel name, it's really just a reservoir for toxic car emissions and extra rain. She's been stealing peanut butter packets from the breakfast bar for me. Her pockets are full of peanut butter packets. Eric confided in me that he didn't want to be part of her thievery, although he did himself steal a banana and smuggled them in uh, to our room in his shorts. This all happened while I was laying in bed. So here I am. Today, I'm not even allowed to leave my lakeside retreat, not until I'm fever free for a full day. The more shit I amass around me, the more I feel like Big Edie Beal and that this is less a best Western and more my very own great gardens. The first night I slept in my clothes and woke up surrounded by the contents of my wallet, a banana in a Ziploc bag and a bottle of Gatorade. Add to that my Mac a can of Lysol, and an old copy of Time Out New York. I'm one degree away from boiling corn on a hot plate, bedside. There's no subtle message here. We take being healthy for granted most of the time, until we're not. Without our health, we are seriously fucked. Our bodies can decide to create mayhem at any time, and it ain't pretty. The only thing less pretty is a 40-year-old gay man dashing through World Showcase in his mother's tiny coat, barfing in a Marrakech bazaar while trying to escape the future as seen through the eyes of the 1980s. Something like that. Wow, I got really worked up there. Hmm? Okay, this one's called Masterclass. And as I'm looking at my list of ones I wanted to read, there are a fuck ton uh, more. Uh, is this okay? Just pause, stop, go back. I'm going to put these all out here. I'm going to give this two more solid hours of my time. But again, now I'm starting to get a little sick of myself. So at least you love me. Thank you for loving me. Okay. Masterclass. The mysterious waitress at the breakfast buffet stared my mother down. 
She damn near burned a hole through her and said coldly, What you want? My mom asked the waitress about 20 questions regarding cereal milk choices. Now, do you have skim milk? 1%? What about 2%? Not whole milk, but do you have, well, fat-free milk? The waitress, whose flat affect remained stony, just repeated in a nebulous accent, again, What you want? My mom landed on skim milk. Acts of Congress have been passed in less time. When Ira, now I could make out her name tag, came back, she picked up my mother's banana and began to examine it carefully. Ira had a very pretty face. She was about 60 years old, I'd guess. Ira was wearing a lot of makeup and most definitely a wig. It was short and very plain. Her eyebrows were drawn on in a real hurry. She wore ginormous glasses secured to her neck with a chain, leftovers from the 1990s. Look at banana, it's rotten. Ira seemed pissed. Look at bottom of banana, miss. Now she was all into my mother's business. I could tell her accent was confusing my mom, and that as soon as Ira walked away, she would whisper, Now, could any of you understand one word she was saying? I would have put my money on it. When banana has bruised like this, no good. I take this banana, I put in garbage. Ira was all business with the banana, and we were wrapped in her interest in it. She looked at my mother for a beat, and then to my dad and me and said, Don't let this woman shop for fruit or vegetable. (laughs) She can't tell from rotten. I put in garbage. Shit, Ira, please do. Clearly my mother is trying to kill us by feeding us bad produce. I did remember looking in my parents' fridge and thinking that they're getting to the age where the expiration dates seem to pass with little fanfare. Smell it, honey. See, it's fine. Maybe Ira's hunch was right. I had to get into her story. This shit was too good to pass up. I bet she's Mexican, my mother hypothesized. It was her wig that gave her the air of a no-nonsense abuelita, but the accent wasn't Mexican. I knew that for sure. Ira was from Russia, and forgive my Russian accent, listeners. Like so many of us, she opened her mouth and her purse fell out. She came to Orlando to be with her husband. He come here before me. I wait for visa. He was cheat on me the whole time in Orlando with beautiful woman. By the time I come here, she tells me, he tells me, no more. Whoa, this breakfast buffet and ready? Ira wasn't even our waitress. (laughs) Jackpot, she continued. I was very beautiful then too, but please remember this is 15 years ago. I have young son at the time, so I stay here. I meet another man and fall in love with him. He leave me too, but this time for a very bad woman. I was professor at university in Russia, very educated. Should I go back? This happens to me two times now. No, I stay for my son so he could have home here. Shit, Ira was breaking our hearts. Also, she wouldn't stop talking now if we stuck that banana in her mouth. We were a captive audience. Our mouths were hanging open. Even my mother was silent. I meet a man who says he could write a book about my sad life. He says he wants to know how the story would end. I told him that no one would read such book. Too sad. My mother, trying to wrap it up, chirped in with one of her coveralls that can put a cheery haze on any tragedy. Well, you have to look at the positive. You're a very strong woman. And oh, isn't that just awful? You poor thing. Nice work, mom. Then it happened. Ira, like so many people in my life, became my teacher. Professor at university? Maybe. Professor in the breakfast buffet? Definitely. 
None of this matters. I can handle any of these situations. Why? I am healthy. If you are healthy, you can make it through any tough day, week, or yes, year. You know, because when you are not healthy, nothing else matters. This bad trouble I have had, I can make it through any of that and more too because I have health. Without this, there is nothing. So I get up every day. I am able to work. I am able to love my son and live in this world. Nothing that has happened to me really matters. I have health. Ira. Whew. Thank you for noticing my mother's rotten banana. <laughs> what you had to say came to me at just the right time. If we're lucky, we get up every morning and live fully in this world. We can love and lose and fight and connect. And if we stay lucky, we get to do it all over again the next day. Being healthy has everything to do with it. How we take care of this one body we get this time around has everything to do with how our mind handles the shitstorms that are constantly swirling around, around us. Ira is proof. She's fine with the absolute crap that her life has dealt her. She's healthy. That's all that matters to her. To Ira, she is still a winner. This road trip is about so much more than losing weight. It's about staying healthy enough to survive and enjoy it to the end. Thank you, Ira. Now, could you please tell our server we're ready for the check? Delish! Exclamation point. I'll tell you one thing. They better be giving out free blowjobs in there to haul me out of this mood. I said this silently to myself tonight as we trudged through the snow and ice to get to our first cooking class together. Our car got hella stuck in an icy rut right outside of Delish, making us 10 minutes late for our class. The name of our class was Lobster Fest. Lobster Fest, for the love of Christ. We couldn't fuck this up. What if we were too late? Would they actually deny us entry? I was already getting mad at them, and we weren't even in the door. All day long, it was only lobster that I dreamed of, and now I was ready to shriek with dread. The lobster gods acquiesced, and before we knew it, we were seated at a table full of middle-aged women ready to feast on dainties and summer rolls and chowders. Seriously, this was some funny shit. At first, I was determined to hate everything. Getting your car jammed in a snow mound, spinning your wheels while cars blast you with their horns, make you a special kind of edgy. Too bad this whole thing got ruined. Like I said, it was going to take a heap of lobster. Flea jo <laughs> free blowjobs were last week to lift me up. Guess what? There was a heap of lobster. We missed the part where they actually told us where to get the fucking lobster. So I broke my silence and asked the woman next to me, um, did she happen to mention where we get the lobster? Any fish market sells five pound bags of fresh lobster. Not that cubed imitation crap that I long ago named Clab. Fake crab lobster. It's clab. And even though it'll do, I was excited that there was a middle ground between that and hearing these little angels scream to their death in a giant pot. Our instructor was a lesbianic type who reminded me of Kristen Johnson. Babe, who's the tall chick from Third Rock? I hear everything. The lesbianic one uh, yelped, shit. When she alluded to her boyfriend, Eric and I gave a quick, did she say boyfriend glance? I think one of the ladies caught us, so I winked at her. Now we're best friends. Anyway, Kristen was incredible and bold. She showed us how to make lobster chowder first, followed by lobster summer rolls wrapped in rice paper. Apparently, no one in Buffalo, New York has ever seen rice paper before. Mysteries of the Orient were revealed. 
Kristen announced, it's made of rice, after about four people asked, now, what is that made of? They were coming unglued. It's gummy. It's like plastic. I urged everyone to please remain calm. It was too late, as most of these ladies in mom jeans and dress barn tops were tanked off the wine. Knowing this, I started to encourage them to misbehave. As we ate our lobster martinis, the women, who Eric coined Dottie McDress Barnes, slowly realized they had some token gaze at their midst. Suddenly, everything was a double entendre. As a few volunteers made the lobster rolls, Kristen recommended they keep it as tight as they possibly can. Ha! She said tight! The last dish, lobster in a light lemon cream sauce, required a reamer to get the most juice. When the third rock from the sun said, Reamer, the dotty next to me nudged me like we'd been friends since grade school. All I could say was, Reamer. <laughs> I just repeated it like it, I was in sixth grade and I was the class clown. These ladies had made it down to the big city and they were going to work the gaze for every pun they could. We made quite a fracas at Delish. I loved this cooking class and we really did learn something too. We learned that a slurry was not what caused the snow mounds we got stuck in, but a gravy, sauce, or stew's best friend forever. Also, there's something out there called sriracha. That's how old this is. It's a hot sauce that you can't miss at the grocery store. It has a green tip and a cock on it. Cue the Dottie McDress Barn hysterics. All right, I'll stop. Take a cooking class with someone you love. Go with your partner or your best friends. There are Groupons out there just for us. It made us forget the turmoil of trying to park in the tundra. And we now know that you can throw a garlic clove into a press with the skin still on it. Who knew? Delish! All right, you're going to learn something here with this one. The spider walk. Have you ever had something really good happen to you and then bam, something even better happens and you don't even give a shit about that first thing that happened? Wait, wait, what about when something horrible happens and then gets trumped by like the most shitty thing ever and you're like, hey, that first thing wasn't so horrific after all. I barely remember it. It's having your birthday on Christmas. It's getting a promotion on the same day someone else loses their job. Two events that happen way too close together and somehow it takes all the impetus out of one or even both. It's what I call the spider walk. Here, I'll use it in a sentence. Girl, don't be spider walking or ooh, you just got spider walked. The spider walk. When I was in my early 20s, I finally got around to reading The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. Oh, the heebie-jeebies of it. I couldn't put it down, read it in almost one sitting with my hair standing on end, and at one point launched the book across the room with all my might. I was keyed up enough already, but when I got to the part where Chris McNeil sees her possessed 12-year-old daughter Reagan, well, this is from the book. Chris looked up and froze, gliding spider-like, rapidly close behind Sharon, her body arched backward in a bow, with her head almost touching her feet, was Reagan, her tongue flicking quickly in and out of her mouth while she hissed sillibently like a serpent. Sharon, Chris said numbly, still staring at Reagan. Sharon stopped. So did Reagan. Sharon turned and saw nothing, and then screamed as she felt Reagan's tongue snaking out at her ankle. Chris whitened. Call that doctor and get him out of bed. Get him now! Wherever Sharon moved, Reagan would follow. 
She spider walked. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Cut to me fleeing the book across my smoke filled bedroom. I remember calling a few friends and reading it to them fervently just to make sure that my closest friends would also find it impossible to sleep. Thank Christ. This is not in the movie. Whoa. Thank Christ. This is not in the movie. Yeah. Thank Christ. Um, this short part of the novel and image ruined me. Director William Friedkin deleted the scene just prior to the original film's December 26, 1973 premiere. Actress actress Chris McNeil, played by the boyish Ellen Burstyn, had just found out that boozy director of her film, Burke Dennings, had been killed. Not only was he killed, it seems that he was tossed out the second floor bedroom window of her very own demonic Moppet Reagan, and his head was turned completely around. How can this be? Audiences will reel at this giant plot twist. Friedkin then shot The Spider Walk as it happened in sequence in the original novel. Friedkin considered that the Spider Walk scene appeared too early in the film's plot and removed it, despite screenplay writer William Peter Blatty's request that the scene remain. What is unsettling is that the Spider Walk is given no buildup and it has been inserted at a point in the film where it's entirely unexpected, creating a what-the-fuck moment rarely experienced in film. It was removed, though, because Free can rationalize that audiences would still be reacting from the news that the main character, Boozy Burke Dennings, had been killed, and the ghastly visual would erase this plot twist from the moviegoer's memory. The call about Dennings was the climax of the scene, and therefore it would be difficult to add the spider walk in at the end, as this would create a double climax. Friedkin never filmed any reaction shots from Chris and her personal assistant, Sharon, both of whom were in the hall as Reagan came down the stairs. The scene was eventually inserted back into the film for the director's cut. Awesome. That's what IMDb says, anyway. All I know is that ever since I learned why, I have referred to two things happening too close together as the spider walk. There's actually a spider walk action figure of Reagan bent backwards. Perfect for your desk at work to shock you into remembering to take one thing at a time only when it's time. I'm careful not to spider walk other people. I try to fight fair and only argue about one thing at a time. And when spreading great news, I try to let it live on its own without spider walking it with something else. It's only fair. Whenever I post a blog entry on Facebook too close to another little quip or clip of my own, one of them usually gets passed over. I even spider walk myself. Damn. When you think about it, we spider walk ourselves all the time. I have to try really hard not to. One thing at a time in its own time. That's how I really try to edit my own life. When people tell me they're going to quit smoking and try to lose weight at the same time, I cry spider walk. Suddenly, I want to freedkin them and edit one so that the other can have a chance. Sometimes we take on way too much, try to do too much or work on too much and never give one of these efforts a chance to take root. Much like audiences in 1973, our brains don't seem wired to accept one event, then kapow, one more, whether it makes your blood run cold or fills you with mirth. The double climax. I'm not sure which scene in The Exorcist I like better, the original or the director's cut. What's cool is that they're always okay to edit something out. You can always try it again later. Like the spider walk. They took it out, then they put it back in. One thing at a time, in its own time. This one I can hardly believe even happened. We are the champions! (sighs) Giant inhale. 
So something insane happened this morning that defies all logic and reason, and I have to tell you about it. It all happened under an hour, and that's what makes it even more fucked up. I made a commitment to run at 8 a.m. this morning. Running in the morning, right out of bed. The nice, warm bed is a shock to all your body systems, including the endocrine system, probably, and no one knows what that one does. In the winter, I can only compare it to falling out of a cozy, wonderful bed into a bone-chilling pit of ice cubes. Who wants that? No one, that's who. But I made the commitment. The alarm jars me up and out after hitting my snooze about a zillion times. Up at 7.43. Dressed like an extra from the movie Barfly by 8 a.m. I don't run in style. I run all mashugana. Kelly, my running muse, the only person I run with because she inspires me and understands me and my need to complain loudly for every run, was late. Really late. Super late. I usually don't care, but today the plan was to run early so I could be home and showered for church choir by 10 a.m. The later Kelly was, the more I wasn't going to church. But shit, I made a commitment there, too. Fuck. You sing church songs with that mouth? Yep. 8.15, 8.25, 8.40. Where's Kelly? I sent the text out like a warning shot. What's the matter with Kelly? Sounds like an after-school special. All shots were ignored. Limited time. I'm worried. On your way? Just coffee? See, we run for the coffee. After every run, we sit nice and talk at Starbucks, and it's hard won. Runners coming through, we announce. Well, I do anyway. The coffee is the best part of running. We can't skip the coffee. This will never work. Kelly will probably just pick me up and apologize, and I'll be all, I'm so sorry, but let's have some nice coffee in our running clothes and talk about running. We'll run later this week. At least we're together. She texts me an austere, on my way. Just that. Cold and heartless. On my way? Did she not see that I have church choir? That I'm a nervous wreck? Has she no heart? Maybe her phone is fucked up. Then she calls. <laughs> I'm outside. We can do this. I'm sorry I was late, but Sean, we are running this morning. We have to. Come out. I have a plan. Um, can I please talk to my good friend Kelly, who I love? The one who speaks from a place of reason and follows the laws of time and space? There is no way we're going to pull this off. What happened next is the fucked up part. I came out onto my front porch at about 8.45 a.m., Please remember that I need to be in the choir loft of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Buffalo, showered and ready to sing at 10 a.m. Kelly, this is never going to happen. Now I was almost crying. Get in the van. That's all she said. And she said it like a woman possessed. Sean, we are running the Shamrock Run in less than a month. It's an 8K and the course has a lot of hills. We have to run, even if it's just for 20 minutes. Do you want to run in the cemetery? Um, sure. Kelly literally pulled a fast left, and before I knew it, we were in Forest Lawn Cemetery. It's much closer to my house than Delaware Park, and I didn't even think of running there today. Another reason I didn't think of it is because it's massive and packed with inclines. It's pretty awesome that Kelly chose a cemetery for our run, because at this point, I totally want to die. I let Kelly know that I'd never quite seen her like this, and frankly, I was afraid of her mania. I could also not stop laughing. All laughter came to a screech when she pulled into the spot right near the gate reserved for the grave digger. She got out of the van as soon as I got out. She was suddenly directly next to me saying, ready? What, no warm up or chit chat before we gear up? Nope. She smiled and then she started to run. Then I started to run. We were running. All of this happened in like one minute. 
And we ran and we ran and we ran up hills and inclines past old people, past funeral cortege. I think we even blew past a zombie. Um, are you okay? That's about all I could say, slash wheeze at this point. Kelly was out of her mind, like a maniac. It was exhilarating and scary. We ran and ran and, is that your van? And it's like 30 degrees and can you hear me wheezing? Whoa, my asthma is like really bad this morning. She was having none of my bullshit. Keep running. We'll run for 20 minutes and then get coffee. We have to do this. We have a race in a month. Think about it. If we can pull this off, we can do anything. You'll get to church on time. No, I won't. Yes, you will. Kelly, seriously, what the fuck? We ran about two miles, maybe less. We had our coffee. I took my shower. I was up in the choir loft at 10.02. Kelly was right. We made it happen. I told her I thought she was a maniac and that she would have us run in the Rite Aid parking lot if she could have gotten there faster than the cemetery. Hell bent! Determined. I have never been so impressed. This morning taught me a few amazing things. First, that Kelly is a lunatic when she needs to be. There was no way we were not running this morning. Gone are the days of blowing it off and just going to Starbucks dressed as runners. Apparently, we've turned a corner. Secondly, I've learned that anything is possible and that just when I thought there was no way we were going to do it all, we did. The key word here is we. I never would have done this on my own. Not a chance. Lastly, I learned that something, even for just a little bit, is way better than doing nothing. We did it all. Some people say that blogging is just bragging on a grand scale. I try really hard never, ever to seem boastful, and I'm really aware when I do sound like I'm thinking that I'm all that. But in this case, we fucking rock. We rock and we rock hard. We pulled this shit off. It was a miracle. We rule. I'm amazing and so are you. A lesser man would have been sipping an iced mocha watching runners out the window. I'm no chump. We are fucking champs, Kelly. Thank you. Every once in a while, we learn a little something. And uh, I thought I had something to teach here. Uh, so this is Sean's top six best bits. Lent gets me crazy, really and truly. First of all, when I was a kid growing up Catholic, giving things up as a Lenten promise, in all caps, because it's terrifying, was a yearly experience in ruin and surrender. No meat on Fridays, unless the Holy Father in all caps, because it's terrifying, gave a dispensation. No sweets or hostess treats. No Muppet Show. That's right. Make it hurt. Now that I'm 40, there's little that remains of my Lenten promises. In fact, I always take this time to add a bad habit or two. Watch more porn. Eat lots of bacon. Try cocaine. When I asked my coworker what she was giving up for Lent, she simply said with a flat affect, hope. Well, that's topical. Ah, that's nice. The true meaning of Lent. I'm all for giving things up, more to help you grow than for penance. This year, for my own personal Lent, I'm going to start following my own advice. What do you think of that one? I got inspired by an awesome blog called BA Expat. Cutie Zach, not his given name, is an American living in Buenos Aires, and I really dig the way he thinks and gives advice. BA Expat, Buenos Aires Expat. Cutie Zach prompted me to think of my top six best bits. Not to be outdone, Zach, here they are. Some are mine, others I have learned from mentors, therapists, and ex-boyfriends. Maybe they will help you too. Practice makes permanent is number one. There used to be a Greg Tower alone on the shelf. 
That is how I sing the very first line of Seal's dark and absolutely inscrutable kiss from a rose each and every time I hear it. Yeah, I know that ain't right, but it's the way I first started singing it back in 1994 when Seal was super cryptic and never published his lyrics. I sang that song to death and I sang it wrong every time. Now, I fuck it up proudly and remember my first tip. Get things right the first time, or you will fuck them up from now until the end of time, I promise. Take the time to read directions, follow someone's lead, and don't be so sensitive that you can't take feedback if you're doing something incorrectly. Sure, we all mess up at first, but we can't let ourselves keep messing up. Whether you are learning a haunting power ballad, an exercise, a weight loss program, or really anything at all, practice it right from the very beginning. Unlearning something once it becomes involuntary is almost impossible. Slow down, get it right, and then put it into practice. Here's a last bit of lyrics. To me, you're like, quote, you grown a dick, unquote, Sean, that you can't deny. Won't you tell me, is that healthy, baby? <laughs> it's not right. Not right. No. Uh, number two, ask for what you want. Don't be afraid to ask for what you want. I need more attention. I need you to turn the heat down. I need more challenging work. I need you to leave me alone for an hour. People aren't mind readers, unless they are, and that's pretty cool. But most of the time, people can't guess what you want. So, it doesn't mean you'll always get it, but unless you're hanging out with Madame Tetrazzini, the clairvoyant, you have to ask. We've all heard no before. In fact, no makes us stronger. You gotta ask, though. Have you ever met someone you're convinced has never heard a no in their life? nasty. So what's the worst that could happen? I had a boyfriend once who was considerably older than me, and he gave me this advice. Don't be afraid to ask for what you want, Sean. He didn't take his own advice and failed to ask me not to be his boyfriend anymore. So he dumped me in a letter stuffed in a funny card. I wasn't afraid to ask him to go fuck himself. Luckily, I did get this pointer from him pre smackdown. Ah, uh, l'amour. Number three. Don't borrow trouble. There's enough shit actually going on, so why borrow trouble? What ifs are crazy making and can really stop us from moving forward? There are a thousand that I can think of, but what stands out is the one that many years ago <laughs> at the Casa de Pizza restaurant here in the city of Buffalo, New York, at the Casa de Pizza, a deer jumped clear through the front window while people were eating. A deer ran down Elmwood Avenue. Smash through the front window. True story. And this is on a busy city street. Now, who saw that coming? No one. That's who. Imagine the time people could have wasted trying to predict that fucked up and, well, by the way, incredible isolated incident. What if I fall? What if I gain weight? What if we break up? Still thinking about the deer, huh? Anything can happen. Don't borrow trouble. It'll find you if it needs you. It's a true story. A deer. Number four. What you permit, you promote. Ooh, it's a good one. We teach people how to treat us. When we let people get away with shit, they think it's okay, and they know from history proof that we won't do anything about it. So it persists. Sometimes I wonder if I have attached a sign to myself that reads, that's okay, you can say all sorts of nasty shit to me, and I'll still be nice to you. Have a great day. That'd be a huge sign, right? We teach people that it's okay to say things like, you've put on a lot of weight, or do things like stand in our faces and complain endlessly when we permit it to continue. Listen, I'm no hard ass. I'm a sensitive gay man who wants to be liked and is way too nice. I have trouble saying no and have taught people over the years exactly how to treat me. 
Slowly, though, I am learning that what I permit sometimes makes me feel like shit. And guess whose fault that is that I feel like shit? Mine. Taking my own advice on this one really takes galvanic force to practice. What I permit, I promote. Unless I want people to continue to learn the wrong way to interact with me. And remember, practice makes permanent. I can't be afraid to speak up. What are you currently promoting that you'd like to see end? Number five, how you do anything is how you do everything. Yes, think about it. I find it to be true for better or for worse with other people and with me too. Makes you think, huh? And then the last one, be great. My friend and young mentor Pietro closes each conversation with his maxim. Oh, the pressure. How much of your own potential are you really using? 50%? Less? I know when I'm being great, when I'm just skating by, fooling everyone, and when I really suck out loud. You may not know, but I know. Pietro often asks of us at the gym to show him who we are. Not to maxim palooza this one by mixing maxims, huh? But believing that how you do anything is how you do everything has kept me honest. Whenever I'm not doing what ought to be done or cheating myself, I remember that being excellent, being truly great, is not just the historic, monumental things, but in the little things, too. Writing a quick thank you note. Really giving someone your all, even though you're not that into it. Saying please and thank you. Being kind and completely honest in tandem. These things make you great. When I sang in high school glee club, we had a perforated 80s style scrolling banner that loomed over us in the music room at every rehearsal. We are excellent, it said. I remember looking at it and thinking that I absolutely knew that we were and clearly were not excellent. When we were and clearly were not excellent. I could feel the difference viscerally. I was 15 years old when that green and white printed paper got hung over my head, but I got the message. I'm still hearing it today. Now the voice comes from within. Be great. Be excellent. Feel the difference and don't permit anything less. This one uh, I wrote right after we had registered for our upcoming wedding at some stores. It's called La Crusade. If no one buys this for us, I'm going to fucking kill somebody. <laughs> Do I know how to class it up in public or what? I honestly did belt this out when registering for our gift registry. Holding a gun, no less. Oh, wait. We don't call them guns anymore. We're not allowed. Yeah, good idea, because I was about batshit crazy after my first store. If most people act even half as lunatical as I did, then put the gun down, sir. Registering changes a man. I wasn't myself. Or I was a totally new version of me. Crazy gay lunatic. That was me. Macy's was where I let that little gem out. We had scanned ourselves into exhaustion at Williams Sonoma and Pottery Barn. By the time we got to Macy's, which, by the way, is ginormous, I was practically babbling. Much like Veruca Salt wanting the golden ticket, I wanted it all. In fact, I even told the saleswoman in my best Edina Monsoon, all of it. I want it all. Now, wedding registries are public. People see them. When people see public things, they have the opportunity to see all of your pathology. I feel so exposed. Minutes, no, seconds after the registries went public, I got a text. You're registered for two apple cores. What's up with that? It's our unbridled zeal for coring apples that compelled us. Really, I have no idea why we registered for two. We chose a high-end apple core and then a more relatable everyman sort of apple core. Nuts. Nuts. 
The a price range for everyone idea followed us to Target, too. By that point, we were stumped and battered, but still managed to lift our tired scanner to the quesadilla maker. As I write, I fear that mocking it freely may diminish our chances of receiving it. Greedy gay lunatic talking again. Said quesadilla maker brings me to my point. I have never made ice cream or panini or even a waffle for that matter. Never have a roasted turkey or made cute little pineapple upside down cakes. There has been nary a day when I've deep fried zucchini or even felt the urge to rim a lemon. (laughs) Sorry, that's ream a lemon. Suddenly, however, I am consumed with thoughts of stand-up mixers and non-stick bakeware and knives. At Williams-Sonoma, the nice lady led us in to the knife wall. She looked us dead in the eye and said, what will your primary use for these knives be? She was nonplussed when I told her we were going to street fight members of the Yakuza that had infiltrated our community. So I went for, um, we're going to like, you know, cut things, onions and things. She was done. She cut right to the chase. Do you see yourselves ever say deboning a chicken? Yes. We'll take that one. The special one with the deboning might. It came undone when we started in on the Le Creuset, French cookware that got me going. This stuff is heavy as fuck all. A cast iron cherry red Eden. Guns pointed, we got a shot at all the saute pans and Dutch ovens and trivets they had. I think I may have even screamed out like my mother would, look at the trivets! We were like power lifters hoisting Le Creuset into the air and scanning it with wild abandon. I want the world, do 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 do, I want the whole world. Since the results of our avarice-filled scanning spree are now there for people to scroll through, something very clear has been called to my attention. What the fuck is up with your registry, Sean? You don't cook. Well, I do cook, but nothing requiring a cast iron soup pot or an all-clad odd-sized measuring cup set. My response is, yeah, but I'm gonna. I'm taking the idea of acting the way you ultimately want to feel and transferring it to these registry shenanigans. I'll cook a fucking lobster now that I own adorable lobster claw shaped lobster crackers. Leave me be. The man, the husband I want to become lives in that registry. He makes a fine French stew and debones chickens till the sun comes up. He sautés and grills and spins salad with zeal. It was almost like registering for a brand new me. I got completely lost in it. I loved it. Oh, by the way, when I'm done juicing kale and pressure cooking corned beef, I like to lay my ass down on a nice faux fur blanket from the nice pottery barn. Just saying. Okay, I'll stop now. But don't they look mad soft? Done. For real. I love Wegmans. Boom diggity. I love Wegmans. I love it so much, I want to marry it and have babies with it. I'm not alone. One Wegmaniac theorized, It's like if you took Dean and DeLuca and Whole Foods and they had a baby, and then Fresh Mart and Trader Joe's and they had a baby, and then those two babies grew up and had sex. Wegmans would be the creepy guy with a mustache filming it. Just kidding, it would be the baby! Undeniably, people are insane for Wegmans. Consider this less of a cheeky homage and more of a love letter. Truth is, I have stiff competition. How will Wegmans ever love me back when there are thousands of people who use terms like love blossoming once they first visit the store and phrases like my life is complete when one finally opens in their neighborhood? Actual quote here. I'm not a religious man, so I come here daily to pray and give thanks for all the bounty brought into this fine establishment. 
Praise Wegmans! You are my savior! This Wegmaniac is not too far off. In the last mid-century, church socials and parish halls were the place you knew you'd find friendly neighbors and like-minded folks who you could chat it up with for hours. They were the unofficial heart of any community. The third place, it's called. That was soon replaced by the coffee culture, started by Starbucks in the early 70s. When I go into any coffee house here in Buffalo, New York, I see the same people shooting the shit every day. All day. These are the places where people now congregate. All across America, people hit the coffee house for first dates, business meetings, post-run cooldowns, or to train on becoming a laptop hobo. In my neighborhood, Wegmans is a church, a theme park, and a giant living room all wrapped into one. And here in western New York, we are often desperate for the spectacle and pageantry only Wegmans can deliver. There's excitement, and at least four people you know around every corner. We Buffalonians are a hearty people. We don't need to be fed excitement on an aisle-to-aisle basis, but Wegmans is like having an e-ticket to all the thrills you can take in. I shit you not, when professors at the height of academia are deciding to come and teach at the University of Buffalo, the school takes them to where? Wegmans. Just to lure them in. The fresh-baked sub rolls and chocolate chip cookies at the sub shop have the power to melt hearts and change minds. Moments after you walk in, you come face-to-face with fresh, attractive produce and fresh, attractive people. Just find one of the adorable 20-somethings in green polos and shiny name tags, and you're on your way. One time, an adorable teenager wearing a neon orange helping hands vest walked me and my hall out to my car holding an umbrella over my head. I just wanted to hug him, but thought that might be crossing a line. Wegmans is more than a supermarket. It's a culture and a brand essence, an experience. These types of personal interactions are what make people drive literally hundreds of miles to get to a store. People drive hours just to dive into the Mediterranean olive bar and eat those little pearl onions and hummus. Hours. Wegmans is the best food market in the known universe, and since this is the only universe we are currently privy to, the lengths people go to to locate one near their neighborhood border on hysterical. Once I had a friend move down to the south, and when I called her to tell her how much I missed her, it went something like this. I miss you, she said. I miss Wegmans. <laughs> I miss you. I miss Wegmans. I don't blame her. I love Wegmans way more than I love most people. It rocks! What person do you know who can pony up a cheese shop, Asian walkery, sushi bar, and patisserie all at the same time? No one. That's who. Some nights, it's just me and the ultimate chocolate cake, and I'm okay with that. Want to feel good? Wish there was some sort of food you could actually feel good about eating? Bam! Try foods you feel good about. They think of everything. I love trolling around nature's market. You get instant hipster status and may just land a Kashi pizza, too. I always let out an almost silent gasp when I see fresh flowers in the men's bathroom. Every single time I go in there, I think that will be the day Wegman says, you know what? Fuck it. People shit in this room. We're not putting a vase of gorgeous, fresh Gerber daisies up in here. But they're always right there, along with some of sort of amazing hand soap that makes you forget you're in a toilet. They also have every size diaper known to man for free in there, which makes me immediately want to exit the bathroom and adopt five babies. Near the front end, I squeal with glee yet again when I see a toy Wegmans truck with working headlights. Is it bad that I want to own one and I'm a 40-year-old man? I come unglued at Wegmans. Who cares if the $6 meals often cost me 8 or even 10 
Not me. Remember, I'm in love and love is blind. They tell me they're six and charge me 20. I barely notice. Just a few steps away, I'm suddenly part of a pan-seared seafood demo. You're sweeping me off my feet. It's like paradise, in fact. The whole prepared food section kicks major ass. I'm not going to lie. I have a husband's bulge for the entire place. Wegmans, I'm madly in love with you. I will never leave you. I just can't tear away from your warm embrace, the dim lights, the cute employees, the hip customers, and that charming little train that keeps zooming around above my head. I wrote this after my very first visit to a farmer's market. It's called Fresh and Local. Not to be dumb, but these people like own farms, and then they come here and sell stuff that they grow. Really, sometimes as urbane and hip as I think I am, in reality, I'm one knock in the head away from needing things explained to me like I'm dopey. So these are like vegetables, right? <laughs> I mean, I knew damn well they were, but I had never seen them all outside in a row like that. Oh God, I was so nervous! In the cruel light of day, face to face with real life farmers, I didn't know a vegetable from a doorknob. I'm so nervous, I said as my friend Abby and I ran across the street to the Elmwood Bidwell Farmer's Market Saturday morning. No, you're not, she snapped back. Abby, not to be confused with Abby, yeah, I know there's two Abbies, how many Abbies do you know, is my impossibly hip, boho-inspired friend who, unlike me, reads and takes care of her body and mind with yoga and carob and lots of juicing. I heart Abby. She was my perfect guide for my first trip to the farmer's market. Hot people serving up hot food. Shh, she said. I have lived in my neighborhood for 14 years and am literally blocks away from this exciting world of free-range chicken and honey just seconds out of a honeycomb. Shit, I always thought it was just a cereal from the 70s. While I've been chomping away on toaster strudel in my PJs just a few steps away, child violinists are setting the scene for people in my own neighborhood to buy up all the maple syrup and dried flowers they can amass. Make me part of this! I have never felt so fresh or so local. Shh. Okay, let's get some vegetables. Abby led me from farmer to farmer with confidence. In fact, I did not talk at all. Abby spoke for me, only turning to me to whisper questions like, do you like blueberries and need any herbs? I got really shy around these farmers. How do you talk to them? Will they know that I don't know shit about what I'm looking at? Leaf lettuce, kale, spinach, it all looked the same. What's that? Those are beets. I could tell Abby sort of wanted to shush me <laughs> and did, but almost felt bad for me too. Organic is like from like the really good soil and no pesticides and shit, right? Eye roll. Then I got haughty. Um, I don't see any carrots around. What's up with that? I go local for like 10 minutes and suddenly I'm a huge dick about the lack of carrots. Really? This has been happening in my own backyard and I knew nothing of it? Abby was so patient with me teaching me as we went along. For some reason, I thought we had to barter with these farmers, as if they were Japanese women selling jewelry in the back alleys of Waikiki. Nope. I was amazed at how many types of products were sold. Not just fruits and vegetables, but artisan baked goods, veggie burgers, fresh meat, cut flowers, wine, eggs, dairy, honey, cheese, and even crafts made by children. We got some honey sticks and Abby took control. I'll choose them for you. Then she got really serious and whispered to me, you know, these are like just for fun, right? You don't like juice them or anything. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
that was just about the best thing that anyone had ever said to me. See, I like when people explain things to me like I'm simple. It's what I need. As usual, I lost my marbles and got all farmer's markety after just one visit. I'm only shopping here from now on. I'll ride my bike. It will decrease my carbon footprint. If there are growth hormones in this rabbit meat, I'm out. Going from someone who frequents Applebee's to a person who buys organic apples near Honest and Jesus live bees may take a hot minute. But I left the farmer's market smelling of hope, civic pride, and fresh basil. Fresh and locally actually made made me feel, well, fresh and local. So don't be surprised if you find me on Bidwell Parkway on any given Saturday haggling with local farmers for goat's milk or mango pudding. Hey, it could happen. Hey, did any of you pose for Spencer Tunick when he came to Buffalo back in, I think it was like 2003 or 4, when he did that giant group nude? I did. (sighs) All right, this is called Naked World. Remember that time I dropped trow with about 1,900 other people, and I knew a ton of them, and then someone took a picture, and then it was in a gallery? I do. Heads up. I'm in the picture. I'm in this picture. Wow, so cool. Did you see me? I'm the dude on the right with the rockin' ass. (laughs) Posing for this picture was one of the most incredible transformative experiences of my entire life. That day, I actually forgot I was in the all together with people I see every day, where I shop, where I sing in the church choir, and where I get my coffee. Hey, everyone. Here's me and my junk. Nice to see you. I was raised, of course, to be abjectly ashamed of my body. Even the word made me blush. When I would hear the gospel of creation at Catholic Mass, I used to get all flushed when the priest would read about poor Adam and Eve and that they were ashamed because they were naked. Shit, sometimes I'm naked. Should I be ashamed? It was my default emotion, right after fear and bemused resignation. At some point in my 20s, when I lived in Florida, I got over it and started going to the nude beach. The first time my Florida BFF Troy took me to the nudie beach, I refused to take anything off. He shucked his clothes and ran free, right into the ocean. Jealous, I went back, this time alone, and slowly disrobed at Playa Linda. This was a playa, all right, but it was no way Linda. Uh, The people on the beach were full-on nudists, most over 60, most beachgoers looking like models from a Lucian Freud painting. When I'm the hottest thing to hit the sand, you know there's some trouble. When I was ready to go back with Troy, my pants came off and Troy stared right at my nethers and said in his syrupy southern drawl, Oh, bless your heart. (laughs) Really? Bless your heart. Maybe it was the chill in the wind. I'm a grower, not a shower. It's probably the last thing that you want a friend to say when they're looking at your penis. We laughed and the rest of our clothes came off and then began my love of being naked as much as I could possibly be. I started taking my clothes off at Miami Beach and Cocoa Beach, too. Sadly, the one at Cocoa Beach wasn't a nude beach and the authorities were not amused. Clothes are stupid. That was my defense. Brilliant. When I heard that photographer Spencer Tunick had chosen Buffalo, New York and the abandoned and supremely creepy Central Terminal for one of his biggie-sized group nudes, I was all over it. Me, me, pick me. The scale of these works are epic. I had seen the HBO documentaries Naked States and Naked World and was completely mesmerized. Organizing shoots in Barcelona and on the Brooklyn Bridge, Spencer was now coming to my hometown to rustle up some Rust Belt TNA. I was not going to miss this chance. The only catch? Everyone in Buffalo is going to see my penis. And my ass. And my fat. 
It didn't hit me until I arrived at the central terminal and signed the release that I really was about to rock out with my cock out. This was no Playa Linda. The central terminal had been abandoned for years, and there was dust and tetanus in the air and on the floor. Spencer was barking out instructions outside the building through a megaphone. The women went first and marched in single file. Then it was time for the men. By the time we walked into the old train station, there were almost 2,000 little piles of clothes evenly spaced out just where we left them. It was as if we all evaporated where we stood. So fucking cool. Now get on your knees! Bend forward and curl up in a ball! Now! It was weird that I had never been inside this space, had driven by it a million times, and now was standing inside it completely naked. There was a lot of nervous chatter and giggling. Are you laughing at my back, fat? Spencer organized us in various poses, calling out that it was time to remove our glasses. The giggling dissipated and soon it was dead silent. We stood expressionless. We knelt. We lay to the side, then to the other side. The silence was only broken by Spencer screaming at the crowd from a ladder on a train platform high above us. Don't turn around. No, no, no. Oh, God, am I fucking up this shoot? Me? Okay, not me. That way. This way. That man. That girl. You. Yes, you. Then get on your knees. Bend forward and curl up in a ball. Ah, Spence, how you talk. We hardly know each other. If I had a nickel for every time someone yelled that at me while I was naked. Okay, no jokes. Hold the pose. Heads down. Heads further down. Very good. That's very good. Don't move. Stay still. Don't turn around. Double entendre aside, this was far from a sexual experience. With half of the city naked and resting their heads on each other's asses, you'd expect it to be a total tag fest, but it really was relevant and profoundly beautiful. The people who, while outside, had bodies with parts that looked like Muppets without eyes became ethereal and stunning. I was in no way self-conscious, and because there were so many of us with nothing on and nowhere to hide, I just went with it and felt safe and handsome and proud. When I picked up my print, we each got one, I tried to find myself for hours, but eventually stopped trying. It wasn't about me or my penis, for once. We were all part of something whose enormity couldn't really be realized until you look at the big picture. As we bent and swayed and rested on each other, I could never have imagined how breathtaking this would look. Could you pose in a group nude? Why? Why not? If Spencer came to town to shoot again today, would I do it again? Would you come with me? If not, what would it take to get us comfortable enough to take off all our clothes and stand tall with this mass of magnificently flawed people? Whatever it takes, that's what I want to do. Be that empowered again. Being naked in public is like most people's number one fear, right? Right after heights and clowns. It's the stuff nightmares are made of. Sometimes I can't believe I had the brass balls to do it. Luckily, there are over a thousand people that were there that day that saw firsthand that I did. This one's for all my friends who have ever been in the musical Godspell. Beautiful city. Last night, my road trip took me back to a spectacular and beautiful place. Getting the chance to watch kids perform musical theater is so rife with material for me. My mind whirls so fast that it seriously could explode. In fact, babe, my head's going to explode, was exactly what I said to Eric as soon as they started to blow the shofar. Prepare ye for overacting and pulling faces and unnecessary hand gestures. Oh, God. Oh, God spell. By the nature of what it is, Godspell is a circus of parables and puns. It's clowns and exploding serpentines. 
When I was in high school, I missed out on a chance to be in a production of Godspell, and I have been bitter ever since my friends got to don suspenders and funky hats to sing day by day. Damn you, Godspell! Instead, I handed out programs longing to be in it, getting crushes on all the boys in the show and listening to the cassette tape of the original soundtrack until it snapped, and I had to unscrew the tape and repair it with tape and a pencil. Me and Godspell, we go way back. Last night, expecting the overacting and underpitched belting you get with any youth production of any show, I instead got something else. Somewhere during this flurry of jazz hands, magic tricks, and grapevine steps, I got inspired. Well, before I got inspired, I got to feeling old. Ooh, I feel so old. I thought as they improv their way through the high-energy parable palooza, oh, bless the Lord, my soul, how did I get to be 40? I should have done more shows in high school. Why did I stop taking voice lessons? I even thought I blame my parents for not getting me into gymnastics. <laughs> really? Gymnastics? These kids expend more energy in two hours it took to perform what seemed to be a gazillion parables from the Gospel of Matthew than I've put out in the last three years. No shit. George Bernard Shaw once said, youth is wasted on the young. He was a regular laugh riot, that one. When I looked at these kids' faces, I saw in them ex the exact same exuberance and passion that was in my face when I was in high school shows. They are so raw up there. I wondered who among them had mad secret crushes on each other, or for whom it was their first time on stage, letting it all go. Watching them cry their faces off during their requisite reprise of Day by Day, I wished I was up there. Still, I regret not being in fucking Godspell. Will I ever let this go? Youth is wasted on the young? Perhaps. These young people have everything going for them. They are physically fit, they've got no wrinkles or gray hair, and their minds are sharp and clear. They were so incredibly talented. I'm talking huge talent here. So much potential. I wanted to go up to many of them and say, you are special. You could have a career if you just believed in yourself but decided against it because A, it's cheesier than shit, and B, it's a total Joe Creeper thing to do. Their energy level was off the chain. I kept thinking about all the experiences out there for them. Shit, freshman year of college, alone will change them all so much. It was so, if I knew then what I know now. Of course, if I knew then what I know now, I'd most certainly be in the clink. <laughs> Even the most serious of apostles up there appeared to be having fun. They took fun very seriously, as serious as a heart attack, some of them. They just let themselves be vulnerable and totally exposed. A total lack of inhibition. That's the part of youth that inspires me the most. The jokes, improv games, and general tomfoolery reminded me that I need to lighten up and let myself be open and exposed, too. It's the silly part of being a kid that I can still get away without looking like an asshole 40-something wearing puka shells and a reading rainbow ringer tee from Urban Outfitters. How beautiful it would be if we all just relaxed a little bit and let ourselves have fun. What if we weren't afraid to be exposed as vulnerable, imperfect fools and just looked for the ridiculous in our everyday life? It would be a beautiful place to be. Last night, I got to see just a glimpse. This one's called Learn It. Apparently playing the flute is like really complex. Here's how I know. My church choir was rehearsing a major piece of music with our city's Philharmonic Orchestra, which, not to brag, is world-class. 
The piece was a Bach cantata for Christmas, and the practice was long, lots of starts and stops. When we got to the flute solo, we started and stopped ad nauseum. Oy, the starting and stopping. The flautist was having a rough time. We all knew it. This solo was grueling and intricate, and she seemed fatigued. Our music director said kindly, Are you having a hard time with that measure? Boy, it's a tough one, isn't it? To which the soloist whined, um, <laughs> yeah, in fact, the whole thing is, is um, pretty hard. <laughs> the nervous hang <laughs> sent my fellow tenor Tim directly over the edge. We were all bagged and had been standing on rises for hours. The musicians from the orchestra made a shitload of money to perform with us. It's almost our entire budget for just one Sunday in April. Tim came quietly undone. He turned to me and whispered, Yeah, honey, it's real tough, but here's how this is going to go. We pay you and you learn it. Oh, my gay, this quote. Where have you been all my life? Every time she fucked up a measure or two, I heard Tim say, learn it softly in his cattiest southern drawl. Tim's not even southern, but somehow learn it sounds better when said with a syrupy disdain. Suddenly, Tim was my new hero. This was so simple. Learn the fucking solo and shut up about it. She was making more in those few hours than we made all week. We pay you to learn it. Stop complaining. Learn it. It doesn't get an exclamation point because it's mad a little bit. You know, like it, like it's done. My incredible friend and mentor Veronica once reviewed my to-do list at work and noticed lots of arrows referring to tomorrow and ongoings written all over each goal. Honey, what about done? Where's done? Any? See, I like to, what I like to do is set a goal and then meet it. Next, show me when something is done. Giving done an exclamation point would mean excited accomplishment. This wasn't quite that. She said it with love and great veracity. Today, I smile every time I write done next to a goal. And just like I'm often heard saying, also in a Southern drawl, see, what I like to do is I set a goal all the time. Learn it has become part of my lexicon. It can be applied to scads of scenarios at work, for home, on a diet, at the gym. Learn it is simple and perfect. I'm not sure how and when you'll use it or in what context, but oh, you will use it all you like. The possibilities are endless. We pay you and you learn it. Just make sure you say it like Beverly Leslie from Will and Grace. Up next, run for your lives. What did you do this morning? Great, that's super cool. Here's what I did. I was chased through mud and rocks and ice cold rivers of blood by terrible drooling zombies. And I ran my motherfucking ass off faster than I have ever run before, proving my theory that to get really into running, you have to imagine that the undead are nipping at your heels. Maybe I didn't read the waiver all the way through or when I saw you may be electrocuted or killed <laughs> number three on the waiver. I thought they were joking. Well, my jolted ass is here to tell you that getting shocked and zapped was not in air quotes. This shit was real. Don't couple it with killed, that in reality would most likely never happen, with electrocuted, that sure as shit did happen. Is this legal? I screamed. You signed the waiver, yelled another runner. Apparently, I didn't read past number two. Kelly, you remember Kelly, right? And I drove to Toronto last night, and when we woke up this morning, we prepared to run for our lives. All caps. We met up with my pepper box of a friend, Tracy, and headed into the infested area. 
This traveling, muddy, zombified shit show is a three-mile obstacle course with about 12 obstacles and hundreds of zombie volunteers. They pay you $25 who try to grab all of your red flags. It's just like flag football. When I tell people that, they give me that, girl, like you know what flag fucking football is face. That's an actual face that people make, and I get it all the time. When all three of your flags are gone, you're dead or undead. I was a nervous wreck, this being my very first obstacle course. The challenges change from city to city. There's the wall of intestines. You can crawl through hay bales with zombies jumping up at you out of nowhere. Hurdles to jump, hills to climb, zombies to haul ass away from, and these fuckers were fast. More about that in a minute. Our wave was released from a dark pen into the mist of a giant field, and we just started to run. P.S. Running on gravel and sticks is super different from running on pavement. We ran through the woods for a while, and then the very living dead started to come out at us. I screamed like a little girl every time. I screamed things like, no, and no, 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 and fuck a lot. The zombies were nuts and really well-trained. Well-trained zombies. Moaning, drooling, grimacing zomboids who thrive on long vinyl flags, apparently. We had to hop two big walls, crawl around, or fall through three big dugouts full of mud. Some young, handsome bucks were there helping us over these filthy things, only to be snagged when we had to crawl through barbed wire. Lots of it. Between every hideous obstacle, there were long stretches to run that were packed with zombies. Let me tell you, I ran like a fucking banshee to get away from them. I have never booked so fast in my goddamn life. Never, never, ever. It was like being a little kid with the nightmare someone was chasing you, even though there was no one there, except there was someone there. The someone changed from field to field. There were priest zombies, bride zombies, 80s workout zombies, and a Tim Horton employee zombie. This was Canada. I was terrorized by undead doctors and nurses and even a zombie Jesus. A zombie EMT was out for blood and there were clowns, many, many clowns with dead eyes and claws. We came upon a smokehouse and had to climb through a window falling to the floor. When we stood up, we could not see. It was filled with smoke. After all, it was a smokehouse and there were silent zombies standing frozen in the mist. We walked through and I couldn't help but notice that I was being rapidly electrocuted by hundreds of little tendrils of wire hanging from beams above. What the fuck? Are these things electrocuting us? Mm-hmm. Moaned a horrible shadow in front of me. Seriously, dude, zombie. We ran the fuck out of there, but of course there were more zombified volunteers waiting for us. I lost my last flag toward the middle of the course. Crafty and even a little pervy, I devised a plan. I hung the last flag right in the center of the belt, so it hung right over my nethers. When a mummified corpse realized that they had to grab my junk to get the last lifeline, they would be sure to spare me. Shameless, Banshee. Leave it to a small Asian woman in pigtails posing as a child zombie to grab my peen for the last flag. Have you no pride? We ran and dodged and ran some more until we saw that we had to climb a wooden wall about 20 feet up to slide down into the river of blood. I climbed with ease, but little did I know that the water would be about 230 on the Kelvin scale. Again, like a tiny little girly did I scream until I realized I had to climb out and run about another half mile with my teensy frozen balls in my throat. 
This is when the nastiest zombies came at us, snarling, ugly, bloody ones. So this is when Kelly starts to argue with one of them. I fucking loved it. You're touching me. No touching. Don't block your flag, yelled the putrefied bride zombie. I'm not, and you're not allowed to touch me. Really, do we have time to chat it up out here, gals? I didn't touch you. I only touched your flag. Kelly later told me what I wanted to say is I paid 85 fucking dollars to do this race and you only got paid $25. So give me my fucking flag, bitch. And then I wouldn't have pushed her. Break it up, kids. I see the finish line. Glee, joy, wait. To finish, you had to crawl on your belly in the mud some more under barbed wire electrified barbed wire and let's not forget the zombies well child i'm about to tell you that getting shocked in my ass while sliding on my stomach publicly is maybe the funniest thing i have ever done my mind has really processed all this ghoulish madness but i know that this is maybe the coolest thing i've ever done i find myself wondering what the zombies were thinking do they judge I'll tell you what I'm not in the mood for is trying to second guess whether the living dead think I'm out of shape or not. That'd be a low moment, right? What did the zombies think of the fella that finished in 23 minutes? Were they still applying latex when he whizzed by? Do they try to hook up with runners at the apocalypse party afterwards over some nice poutine? No one ate my brains, but all my flags were violently ripped from my belt. I still got a medal. Soaking wet all the way to my skivvies and covered in mud, I showered off under a pipe and then went to change in the gigantic changing tent, full of naked, wet athletic men, and we all know those Canadian men are unusually superior and far more attractive. And there I stood, hiding my junk with my nasty, dirty freaks t-shirt on. Erotic! My legs ache and I have cuts on them and one of my hands from where I may have swatted a zombie early in the run. There is mud between every one of my toes, and my back is throbbing. Every time I close my eyes, I see evil clowns, and it was the most fun I think I have ever had. All right, I got to tell you, for every one of these that I read, there are three that I didn't read. So if if ever you want to read all of these motherfucking blog entries, uh, email me at Sean72I, S-H-A-U-N, 72I, as in India, at yahoo.com. And I'll send you a Word document that you can peruse for free. <laughs> Isn't that nice of me? What if I charged you? It's $17 to read this blog. Um, but if you like it, there's more. I, there's, I had to pick and choose. But this last one uh, is kind of special. And I'm going to close with Meet the Doyle Burgers. On the night I met my husband, Eric, I rushed in from our first date to tell my best friend, Alicia, all about him. We cooed and odd and ooed, and then we cut to the chase. What's his last name, she asked, ready to hyphenate us, to test us out as coveted, hyphenated gay duo. Knowing that shit matters, I looked at her and frowned. Leon Berger. Oh, uh, let's see, she said. Doyle Leon Berger. No, too long. Weird. Leon Berger Doyle, too syllable heavy and well, it just doesn't flow. She shortened it up almost instinctually. Doyle Berger, that's it, Doyle Berger. Then it clicked and she begged, oh, sweet Jesus, please be the Doyle Burgers. We jumped up and down and laughed and then remembered this was, of course, a first date. Like best girlfriends, we were just seeing how our names went together just in case he was the one. Well, of course, he was and is the one. 
The reason she jumped like a Mexican jumping bean at the thought of us being coined the Doyle Burgers is because in our world, there was already something called a Doyle Burger, just spelled a scunch differently, and edible, unlike my marriage. Huh? My dad is the kind of man who always made the ordinary extraordinary and special for me growing up. Whether it was a trip in the car, a night watching television, or just bedtime, he made all of it seem as exciting as Christmas morning for me. This he did with a bacon cheeseburger, too. By just giving it a name, Doyle Burger, he had us all begging for them for dinner. What made them better than an ordinary old burger still eludes me, but when he even suggested that Doyle Burgers were on the menu, family and friends alike lined up. Savory? Yes. Magical? Maybe so. The Doyle Burger followed me into my adulthood, and when I'd invite friends over to my mom and dad's for dinner, they would cry out, For Doyle Burgers? Yes, yes! And they would be there in a hot second. My dad donned his bizarrely patterned apron, covered with artist renditions of golf tableau, and gets to work. The magic is in a secret ingredient I cannot reveal. No, I won't tell it. Never! Well, if you ask nice. So the Doyle Burger was around for years before this fella met, well, this fella. Alicia's zeal was a given considering that this was part of all of our lexicons. When I revealed to Eric that my dad made a kick-ass burger that had a name similar to what ours may look like, when they were to collide head-on, he ran with it. We started signing our holiday cards, Doyle Burger. Every thank you card we sent out billed us as such, and when we were married, the name sort of took over. It's not anything we change legally, but to most people, it's who we are as a couple. So tonight, my dad made us Doyle burgers. We feasted as I cracked him up by taking pictures of him cutting an onion and getting the bacon mighty crisp. What do the human Doyle burgers have in common with the burger? Of course, everybody loves them. People are sad when they're gone. And whenever they're around, it's a party. Things that are dissimilar may include that Eric and I are not covered in raw onion, and we aren't a cause of possible gas. Other than that, we're the same. All the ingredients put together make something special, and of course, we are made from love. Here's a guide to making your very own Doyle Burgers from the Doyle Burgers. Turn regular burgers into a holiday and be sure to call them by name. Golf apron is not mandatory, but it couldn't hurt. The griddle is key. Do it all on the griddle. The bacon, the rolls, the burgers, all of it. It's the only way to get this shit hot enough to be Doyle Burger approved. Set the temp at 250 for the bacon and 350 for the burgers. Slice up some raw onion for added Doyle Burger flavorings. This is optional, so don't panic. Cut to my dad in his favorite golf apron burning the living fuck out of the bacon. Is he not the cutest? Get some nice rolls from the bakery. Don't go cheapola and get a pack of hamburger buns. Those are for chumps. Grill the rolls on ye old bacon grease and then set aside. This bacon has to have the shit cooked out of it. Those aren't bubbles of grease that you see. No, they're little balls of magic. My dad uses extra sharp cheddar cheese. Boar's head is his fave. Don't be lazy. Go to the deli. This is a Doyle burger for the love of Christ. See, with the griddle, you can sear it on both sides, and that makes it the juiciest burger in, like, the world. The beef is 80-20 chuck. Do not press down on the fucking burger. You'll kill it! Try four minutes on each side for medium, five for well done, three for rare. 
You gotta know when to put the cheese and bacon on. When there's a minute left is best. Cover the whole shebang with aluminum foil open on the ends. You gotta be fast, says my dad. And then, voila, the Doyle Burger's Doyle Burger. Well, I hope you enjoyed this. I'm exhausted. I never again. And I'm sick of I hate myself. <laughs> I don't want to ever hear myself talk again. But it was good to get some of these out there. Um, I'm really proud of my writing and I, I uh, don't write anymore at all. Not at all. Uh, I write for work um, on occasion, but it's not like creative writing. Uh, but hopefully this got you through some some car rides, some rough times, some some early mornings. Some runs on the treadmill. I forgot about that. Uh, and uh, I'll be back. This was done um, during two times that my children were not home. So um, just to give you kind of a, I don't know, like there's an hour and a half left before I have to pick up Frankie uh, at UB Child Care Center and then uh, to go pick up Jackson at my sister-in-law. So my window of freedom is slowly cl closing and I feel I feel like a, there's like a tight hand on my throat. <laughs> I'm just closing up. So I really enjoy. I don't know what I'm going to do with the next hour and a half. What should I do? Watch a docudrama, watch an entire binge watch and a whole series. I should eat that frozen pizza. Um, but anyway, thanks. This was me on a diet. Disc one and disc two. Uh, and again, if you have any questions, comments, uh, remarks, please email me. Uh, and people have people have emailed me. So thank you so much. I hope to connect with you soon and, uh, you know, enjoy your road trip. We're all on a road trip, right? The, the metaphor is going to end right here. But uh, we've come to the end of our road trip. And uh, soon I'll be 50. So I will be maybe I'm going to start a new blog, maybe. Or I'll just keep this podcast going. How about that? OK, love you all. Bye. Thank you.